VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Tuesday, May the 23rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So hopefully you were lucky enough to be one of the folks who had a long weekend here for the Victoria Day weekend, or May 24th or 2-4, whatever you call it. Coming back in the highway yesterday, I tell you what, the highway speeds and the willingness for people to be really pressing hard on the loud pedal in a distinct hurry to get home out of it, wherever home might be. So today we're going to hear an announcement from the provincial government about the installation of some speed cameras. Where they're going to be, how it's going to work, we really don't know. Different municipalities have taken it upon themselves to do things to curb speeding in their community, whether it be out in Paradise with these rubber bumpers that they're going to be using, down in Portugal Coast, St. Phillips, with their own peace officers that will be pulling over speeders, distracted, distracted drivers, those willing to pass a school bus that stopped with the stop sign out and the bright red lights blinking. Here's a couple of questions that people will have. Now, right off the bat, I really crossed with myself reading a social media thread about these cameras. <laughs> anyway, so... You know, we've got this issue, and it still persists with some people on their vehicle where you can't read the license plate. You simply cannot. Wherever we ordered that batch of license plates, the paint or the coloring came off immediately, so it's absolutely unreadable. What will become of those, and will people be mandated with threat of a ticket to get a new plate on the rig? Number one. Number two, you know, the posted speed limit is exactly what it is, depending on, you know, whether you're in a school zone, a 50 zone, or on the highway at 100. People have the rule of thumb on their head that you can drive 110 and get away with it. The police will not pull you over. So there's a fair question to ask about tolerance or leeway. In other parts of the country, it's about 10 kilometers or more above the posted speed limit before you get a ticket. And the, the camera is only activated when it sees or feels or senses a vehicle that's speeding. Not a full-time monitoring system, or at least that's not where it is elsewhere. And then some of the some of the responses to the new story are really quite remarkable. That, you know, Big Brother, X, Y, and Z. Man, these speed cameras have been used across the country for decades. Like, I'm not really sure what the issue is. If we have a problem with speeding and reckless driving and aggressive driving, which we do, maybe, just maybe, this will slow people down. You know, nothing slows you down quite like a cop car, but I think the second best would be knowing that you're in a speed camera zone. So, some more information coming today on those cameras. And, of course, it's this time of year, every spring, we get the same types of concerns coming from various, but always very similar communities with residents who are upset about the way that people on their ATVs or their dirt bikes are operating in the community, whether it be the speed or the time of day that they're out there, and they can be quite loud, no doubt about it. So if you're one of the residents of said community close by here, the notables, CBS, Paradise, Flat Rock, I get the same emails every single spring. Nothing seems to change. Anyway, you want to take on any of those? Let's do it. Also, on this date in history, Canada's Northwest Mounted Police Force was established back in 1873. Then, of course, now known as the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They were given the royal designation, the ability to use the royal prefix, in 1904. Lots of conversations about the fate of the RCMP. Been under the microscope, and rightfully so, for quite a long time here now. And in this province, percentage-wise, the greatest number of RCMP job vacancies. 
and we know the issues that that brings to bear. So people will also comment that, you know, more and more of these cameras will see government unwilling or thinking that technology can replace police cruisers and police officers on the ground, which of course they cannot. They should simply be a complement too. Then I think there's more conversations to be had with the body cameras being worn. Again, nothing new, utilized by law enforcement around the world for quite a long time. And there's nothing like going to the tape to settle a he said, she said type of instance. So anyway, there's a lot there on that law enforcement and speed issue if you're willing to and wanting to take it on. Growler's big win last night over the Florida Everblades. Got a 4-1 win. It was a must win. They were down 2-0. Now it's 2-1 in the series. Back to Mary Brown Center on Thursday evening for puck drop at 7. And then, you know, Florida winning all these hockey games. Florida up uh, over the Carolina Hurricanes 3-0 with a 1-0 victory last night. It's kind of stolen. Bobrovsky was a real wall there in the net for Florida. But anyway, I don't know how adventurous you are, but this is an interesting story that I read over the weekend, and it's about folks who are willing and wanting to climb Mount Everest. Of course, the tallest peak in the world, 8,849 meters or 29,032 feet. You know, it seems to me that that sounds like the most adventurous, uh, grueling, and arduous thing you could possibly want to do in this world. But see, you've seen the pictures, log jams at the top in the so-called death zone. Nine people have died on Everest this year, but there was a record set by a fellow who broke his own record for the number of times he's scaled and peaked uh, Mount Everest, a guy named Kenton Cool. He climbed Mount Everest for the first time in 2004, did it almost every year since. Uh, over the weekend, completed his 17th climb. And the headline was strange. is record set by a non-Sherpa. Okay, so Kenton Cool's not a Sherpa. In the world of Sherpas, these are, of course, the Nepal Sherpa guides. Here's one. It's uh, Tammy Rita has climbed the mountain for a record 27th time. 27 times up Everest. And is actually on the mountain now. And uh, the climate season is over at the end of this month. But if you've seen the pictures of the log jam at the death zone, just short of the peak, really remarkable stuff. All right. And bad news for folks who suffer from seasonal allergies. Despite the cold weather, apparently, the grass and the trees have been hanging onto the pollen. And what it looks like is when the weather turns for the better and the warmer, there's going to see a pollen boom. For folks who have ever suffered with hay fever or similar allergies, it can be a real nuisance. When I was a child, I had it bad, and knock on wood, I seem to have grown out of it. But they're looking at a terrible allergy season of all the things. And if you know anybody belong to you or friends of the family that have been participating in Montreal in the 34th Canadian National Challenge, let us know how they did. So we had students from this province from grade 1 through grade 12 who are in Montreal. So chess is a great game for critical thinking and all the rest that goes with it. Chess has seen a real renaissance during the pandemic. But if you know someone who is up at the championships, let's go. All right. So they're going for the crab. It was inevitable that at some point during the crab season, there will indeed be a decision to go for the crab, and they're out there now. I'm not sure what was achieved by the tie-up. I'm really not. So we've seen the FFAW versus the uh, ASP, the Association for Seafood Producers. We've seen Harvester versus Harvester, and then it became Union versus Union, where there was a one-day blockade out in Argentia where they're doing work on the West White Rose Extension Project. The leader of the Carpenters Union is calling out the FFAW for doing that. There's an agreement signed in Argentia for no work stoppages, there'll be no strikes or the like. So that made it part of it. There wasn't any, there's a stipulation apparently inside this agreement that was reluctantly signed by the FFAW for the Premier to get involved and to rejig the price setting process. For sure. I mean, it doesn't seem to be working, quite obviously. 
But again, really don't know what was achieved here. I don't have any skin in the game. I'm not a crab harvester. I'm not a harvester of anything in the wild stock. But for you who may indeed be involved, I'm sure it's really welcome news for plant workers and the trucking companies and those supplying other services to the fishing industry, and in this case, the crab industry. But where did we, how did we get to where we are today? And is anybody any further ahead? Anyway, lots of calls about how either side presents the information. And the price set they've, be, they've been able to guarantee is very similar to a structure that was leaked or was supposedly an offer last week, which ASP says was never an offer. So they've been quite clear that they're not going to uh, not only negotiate in public, but every bit of information exchange, numbers and otherwise, they will make public so that people of the province know what's happening. So here it is. So it's going to be based on the Erner Barry Index. That's a market watcher. They do red meat, poultry, eggs, seafood. So 220. They're going to get the 220 that was initially established by the price setting panel, guaranteed regardless of the status of the market. Historically, if the market softens from the beginning of the season throughout the first month, historically, it doesn't bounce back. Look at the fact that both sides have said there's a glut of inventory. So they've got a sliding scale here. If the market inc uh, improves to 485 American, it'll go to 225. It makes it to 495 to 230, 550 to 260, and at uh, $6.01 to be a price reconsideration. So I guess it is the good news that they have indeed arrived at some sort of deal. But again, unless there is, and you know, it's one thing to have a stipulation between the FFAW and the ASP about rejigging the price panel or the price setting structure, but until that actually happens, and, you know, the union or the ASP can demand of the government, but they cannot require the government to do anything about it, even though they absolutely need to. So here we are weeks later, behind in the game. Atlantic harvesters have landed maybe $100 million worth of crab. So does that jeopardize the market going future for crab taken from our waters? I don't know, but I think these are legitimate questions that people are asking. But anyway, whatever side you're on inside this snow crab issue, and for sure doesn't matter which side you support, so to speak. Got to figure it out so that this time next year, even if there's a dispute on price, it won't see a province-wide tie-up. If it's about percentage of market share or the ability to, of the harvester to sell a percentage of their catch on the roadside or directly to households or restaurants, which in large part, many much of that is already amended in legislation, but unless there's large-scale changes, it's quite likely we find ourselves back in this predicament because when you go from a banner year last year of just short of eight bucks and then down to just over six bucks by the end of the season, and then the sticker shock of 220, of course emotions were going to run wild. And anyway, you want to take it on. Let's go. Sticking with the world of food production and the wild stock, hunters are being, I don't know, warned or made aware of the fact that there is a number of waterfowl testing positive for avian flu. Some of the numbers that are coming from the Canadian Wildlife Service and talk about proper hygiene so that you can protect yourself and your family, there's been 110 confirmed cases of bird flu uh, found in this province so far. So whether it be in the puffins, black leg kittiwakes, murres, eiders, northern gannets, it's out there. There was 45 dead birds submitted in the recent past from Labrador, and 12 of them returned positive. So they're just talking about safe ways to make sure that you don't put yourself at risk, even though the risk is, is not there with a fully cooked bird, but... You wear gloves when you're cleaning the animal. Don't touch your face. Dispose of the internal organs so that no other wildlife can access them. Keep pets away from the wild birds and other wild animals. But if you're a hunter, 
and you're going for the waterfowl, if you want to make reference to the warnings you've heard for about avian flu, let's do it. And some of the signs to watch for, they say, is animals that are acting lethargic. The head is drooping, swelling around the head, swelling around the eyes. Does not show the animal, shows no fear of humans. That's an interesting one to factor in. Excessive eye secretions and what have you. So, And in the hunting world, of course, the conversation is still alive regarding moose licenses and the reduction for the local hunter, not so much for the outfitter or the hunter coming in. All right, stick with uh, food production for a second. What a great program uh, held by the folks called Succeed, S-U-C-S-E-E-D. They provided uh, hydroponic kits to all the classrooms in the Labrador portion of the English-speaking school district. So this is pretty great stuff. You know, it's not only seeing it grow in the classroom, but highlighting food production, food insecurity, so that young students can wrap their mind around what's happening. Because before long, they'll be the adult in the room, they'll be the adult in the house, who are then going to be charged with feeding their families or trying to come up with public policy to address these needs. So it would be great to speak to someone, whether it be Northwest River, Lake Melville, or what have you, about how the hydroponic program is working. And yes, a technology that we could and should adopt province-wide to address all the obvious issues surrounding food production. All right. Quick mention on the tourism season. Ran into a bunch of tourists over the weekend, which is great stuff. Uh, I see that Greg Wells, a Grammy winner, has now, of course, bought the old Anglican Church in Winterton, converted into Trinity Hall. The grand opening was this weekend, and all my buddy Daryl Power was there. Daryl, if you're listening, you want to chime in, let's go. So this guy, Wells, he's a big deal. He really is a big deal in the world of pop music. Working at the moment with Ariana Grande, one of the big names in the world, uh, Cynthia Erivo, and also has won a Grammy with Michael Bublé, worked with Keith Urban, Missy Elliott, Katy Perry. So he bought the church. The locals were worried that someone from out of province, he's an L.A.-based music producer, worried that, you know, what's their hope? And now Wells comes to town with an incredible refurbishment plan, and going to be able to host not only events like happened over the weekend, but for all types of musical acts and aspirations in and around Winterton, Greg Wells, good on you, man. And, I mean, talk about the ability maybe to go to a workshop with not only Greg Wells, a Grammy winner, but some of the Grammy winners that he's worked with. So that's pretty cool stuff. And inside the world of tourism, we all take for granted the iceberg. Well, not all, but many do. So what has been a place for about 100 years, the International Ice Patrol is coming to an end. It first saw the skies right after the sinking, or about a year after the sinking of the RMS Titanic. So it's been run by the U.S. Navy from their C-130 airplane, which is based out of St. John's. It is a relationship between Canada and the United States, flown by the, I think it's either the Coast Guard or the American Navy. Anyway, so they've been out there doing this work. And now because of the advancement in drone technology and the fact that they can better use satellite imagery, to help vessels safely navigate some of these iceberg-filled waters. The iceberg, ice patrol, pardon me, the International Ice Patrol is going away. They think they probably got one more season of monitoring the sea ice for those out there navigating, but anyway, I thought that was interesting. All right, this gets an eye roll, so be it. Skepticism rules the day regarding the future of the Stephenville Airport and the proposal made back in 2021 by Carl Diamond and the Diamond Group of Companies. Mayor Tom Rose, who's long been very optimistic on this front, and I know there's been very little reason to be optimistic about the purchase by the Diamond Group, $500 million of investment, the big cargo drones, and all the rest of it. 
But now the mayor says that there has been an advancement. One of the things holding up the wheel was a historic insolvency issue. That's been settled and solved. And so now the mayor says that there's been a transfer of money. We're not 100% sure. We haven't heard anything from anyone but Mayor Rose. A transfer of money to the airport authorities' lawyers. We don't really know a whole, whole lot about it. One thing was that the province had a line of credit in place from $900,000. That has to be paid off, and the government says they will never put it forward again. So Mayor Rose is optimistic. Maybe we'll get the mayor on, see if he can elaborate on some of the vagueness surrounding what has recently happened with that potential purchase plan. It would be great for the area, needless to say. Thousands of jobs, but anyway... We'll see if the mayor has time to talk about it, and you're welcome to talk about it, too. It has cost the residents of Stephenville some money. There's been a monthly stipend afforded to the airport. The only councillor that has voted against it in the recent past is Lenny Tiller. So uh, hopefully the mayor is not just, and this not to be overly critical or to be harsh, hopefully this is not cockeyed optimism. Hopefully it's based in some realities on the ground, but there seems to be some moves there. I had a few others I want to get to, and maybe I'll save them for tomorrow. But a lot of eyes will be on Ottawa this afternoon around 1.30 island time when the Prime Minister's appointed special rapporteur, pretty fancy word for person, former Governor General David Johnson, will file his report regarding foreign inter- interference in the 2019 and 2021 elections. In some corners, this may have been grossly exaggerated. In other corners, probably grossly underplayed. But hopefully we'll find out more. There was a letter written by former Conservative Party leader who was ousted, Aaron O'Toole. He's been fairly reserved since his days as the leader. I mean, there's some questions about his leadership. Of course, don't ask me. Uh, just, or I'm not telling you. The CPC members told us. So he said he thought it was basically a waste of time, an exercise in futility, a box-checking exercise. Every opposition party in the country has been asking for or demanding a public inquiry. The Liberals have said they will call one if it's recommended by Mr. Johnson. Even his appointment has been widely questioned. Whether or not some of the questions are legit or exaggerated, leave that up to you and your opinion. But the report comes out today. Liberals can still call a public inquiry even if it's not recommended. And there's still some pretty massive questions out there. There's no doubt about that. And I think for the sake of the integrity and the institution of our elections, free and fair as they are, we need to know more about these 11 MPs and who they are, what the level of interference or influence was, from hand on on down. And questions about a Chinese diplomat who has been expelled from the country, the threats offered to Michael Chong's family back in China, there's a lot to this. For some folks, they may never have faith again in the elections. Now, of course, Conservative leader Mr. Poliev will not accept or did not accept the invitation. Initially, we were told it was because they were only given a 48-hour time window. And then we went on to be told that I guess they put it in front of a, a group of Canadians to see what polled the best. Then they said they aren't going to waste their time on talking with a person who represents a fake job, right? Fake. Anyway, we'll get that report later today, and I think that's going to be interesting to see where we head on that front. How are we doing on the phone, David? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. 
That only happens when you call the show. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. There was a quick email where someone said, we haven't talked at all about a story that was out last week about tampered eye medication. And it was actually on my list this morning. We will 100% get to it because it is a very confusing story with huge ramifications about who knew what when with these tampered eye medications being brought in the province maybe as long ago as 2015 or possibly even earlier so far as 2010. I've been trying to reach a guest to talk about the pro- talk about the issue on the show and the severity of it. And we'll see we can get to it here in the near future. Okay, let's begin this morning on line number two. Say good morning to the Conservative Member of uh, Parliament, representing the folks of Costa Bay, Central and Notre Dame. That's Clifford Small. Good morning, Clifford. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How about you? Doing pretty good. Uh, Patty, uh, calling you today about this uh, tax, well, basically the government saying it's not a tax, but the Clean Fuel Initiative, whereby... 17 cents a litre on gasoline and diesel will be charged by 2030. And the cost to the average household in Newfoundland Labrador, according to the public, uh, the, uh, the, P- the parliamentary budget officer, is going to be an extra $850 a year. So uh, I'm a little bit confused because this money is going to be funneled from the taxpayers into the oil produ- or the fuel producers to help them develop cleaner fuel by 2030. Just to give folks a little, bit, a little more context about what exactly this is about. So by 2030, they're talking about reducing the carbon intensity. So it has to fall be, uh, 15% below 26, 2016 levels. They say that that will take 26 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions out of our emissions envelope, just so po- folks know what we're talking about. Yes. So then by 2035... We're not going to be able to buy an internal combustion engine. You know, vehicles are all going to be electric that are sold in Canada. So we're going to spend all this money for what? For a five-year window before we convert to all electric vehicles? It's a fair question. Make a whole lot of sense. It's an absolutely fair question because it seems to be trying to achieve two distinctly massive milestones in a very tight time frame. I'll be surprised, Clifford. I mean, this is only the 2035 issue and internal combustion engines is only going to be something on the paper or on uh, written on written in stone if the Liberals have their druthers. I don't think any other party has really fully uh, signed on to this. So in the impact to GDP. So they say we'll see a decrease of GDP about 0.3%, which is not insignificant because that's around $9 billion. And the estimates are it could cost about 1000 bucks for higher income households. So again, just to put some numbers out there so people can give their thoughts a bit of context. And as well, uh, as well on this one, Patty, that, that tax is going to be charged on fuel used by fishermen and farmers. Uh, versus the you know the, the the tricky aspect of carbon tax as it applies to uh, the agriculture industry, and it's not it's not applied to uh, to uh, to fuel being used in fishing vessels. But this new one is going to be applied right across the board. Here's what I would also throw in, and I'm curious to get your uh, your comments on this now. 
Priorities other than the CPC have looked at this, and it's always worth paying attention to the Parliamentary Budget Office. I mean, I don't think Yves Giroux and his predecessors get enough credit for the work they do. This was not requested by anybody. They just took it upon themselves to do analysis of this cleaner fuels regulation that's being proposed. The priorities, like the Liberals and NDP and the Greens say, what's not factoring here is any cost to Canadians regarding issues surrounding climate change, whether it be floods or wildfires or other severe storms. They say that that should be included because if we're talking about costs and impact on Canadians, to not have a complete big picture inside of this analysis leaves one distinct cost out of the frame. What do you think? Well, Canada's producing less than 2% of uh, greenhouse emissions uh, in the world. So Yeah, but that wouldn't be a global conversation. That would be what ca- Canadians are seeing regarding insurance premiums. I mean, just look at the Insurance Bureau of Canada. They tell us quite clearly that the frequency, severity of storms and the compensation uh, for rebuilds and cleanups is skyrocketing year over year. So it doesn't matter where we stand in the world for emissions. It just matters what we're actually seeing inside the borders of our own country. So do you think that should be included in this type of analysis? Uh, That's that's tricky, Patty. That's really tricky because these things are so hard to quantify. And how do you how do you put a a number, a concrete number, on that? Because it changes every year. So are are you suggesting that maybe this this tax should be going into a fund to help mitigate against climate change? I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just asking for your perspective on uh, part of the conversation that is not being led by your party, but being led by the other parties, is that to have a clear picture of what's happening and impact on my pocketbook should that not be included? That's the question. I'm not suggesting we create a slush fund or where the money goes or how it's applied. Just what do you think of not including impacts and costs of climate change to this analysis? Uh, because it's a, it's a global issue, and when we've got China producing, you know, the, the largest the largest emitter in the world, it's it's impossible for us to to make a, a much difference when you're, you're talking about bringing down the the emissions from from fuel by 15 percent by 2030. 15 percent. Now that's the fuel. How much how much of that fuel? Uh, is contributing. We've, we've got we've got ge- electricity still being generated by coal in Nova Scotia. There's there's so many other things that could happen, like bringing natural gas right ac- uh, a corridor right across the country, <clears throat> and and changing those coal burning uh, electric plants to to natural gas. And bang, right off the bat, their emissions go in half. So there's technology and other ways that we can address this instead of putting it on the backs of the consumer which is they're already overburdened and struggling and they can barely get by you you see it yourself fatty and tr- trying to put some food on the table for your family uh, of course but i mean replacing coal-fired generation just makes sense and that was part of the argument that both the conservatives and the liberals made with federal loan guarantees regarding muskrat falls because they will be able to reduce their coal-fired footprint in nova scotia because of our hydro but things like natural gas for replacing those plants that's not necessarily exactly what this cleaner fuel regulations because this is 
is about the transport sector, which is a significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in this country. So I get what you're saying. You know, let's look at everything to reduce carbon emissions in the country. But this one's about transportation. They also talk about the potential to influence more and more adaptation of biofuels or hydrogen. And there is, I think, good questions to be asked about the heavy sector, like transport trucks and the like, whether or not this is going to be an answer for them. Will the technology be there for the transportation of goods via transport trailers across the country? So there's a lot to this, but I, I was curious to hear about your, your stance on putting climate change costs in. I don't think it could be clearly defined easily, but if we're able to define, you know, 26 million uh, tons of greenhouse gas emissions in reductions, there should be a way to put some sort of number regarding, regarding climate change, because we see it. It doesn't mean that it's just because of climate change that Fiona happened, but when we see what's happening across the country with wildfires and floods and severe storms, there's got to be some number we can associate with it. Well, maybe there's an average number that we that we can look back and and make projections. But it's uh, technology, uh, not taxes, is where we need to go uh, to to reduce our emissions. And you know, we look at our refinery now that's being converted over to uh, refine used cooking oil from the United States. All of our jet fuel, our propane, our gasoline, our diesel came from that refinery. We're paying an extra, I'm not sure, the figure around six cents a liter on everything now that's coming into this product being shipped in. The only thing that's going to be remedied out of that is we're going to get some biodiesel. No jet fuel, no gasoline, and no propane. So the, the, the costs, this is very, very complicated. And I think that the Prime Minister is just playing to his base. On the issue regarding uh, come by chance or Brea Renewable Fuels, of course, that's private sector made the decision. Didn't look like there's any takers to come in and keep operating as the refinery as it once stood. So I don't know if government picked and choose winners, but I don't think there was anybody else interested in buying it. That's changed hands several times over the years for sometimes as little as a dollar. So I don't know what the future held there, but that was a private sector company bought it off a private sector company. Mm, uh, well, it's consumers that are going to are going to pay at the end of what well, we're we're paying now, actually. Yeah, it's and going forward, our that refinery's gone forever for for, for producing for uh, producing uh, uh, you know uh, refining uh, oil other than uh, vegetable oil. But uh, and here we are with our offshore about to make some uh, major leaps and bounds in 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 growth and production by the looks of it over the next few years. Well, maybe maybe, maybe there will be an opportunity to build a new refinery. Who knows? I appreciate the time this morning, Clifford. It sounds like you're on the highway, so safe travels. Okay, my friend. You take care. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, Bye-bye. Right, Clifford Small. Of course, he is the Conservative Party of Canada member for Costa Bay Central in Notre Dame. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, let's uh, continue to keep the conversation going. The topic entirely up to you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Every now and then we like to have researchers on from Memorial University who are doing important work and, of course, good data leads to hopefully good policy. Join us on line number two this morning is a graduate student in the Faculty of Education at Memorial University. That's Tina Pomeroy. Good morning, Tina. You're on the air. 
Oh, hi, Patty. Nice to be on here. Happy to have you on the show. And as I mentioned, I think if we can get more and more people to participate in the research projects done at MUN, we come up with better data, hopefully better policy and a better understanding of what's happening. What's the project that you're working on? Yeah, so the title of the project is The Mental Health of Perimenopausal Women and Their Experiences with Newfoundland Labrador Healthcare. So it's really an exploration of um, women's lived experiences with mental health at, during perimenopause. So I'm, I'm doing a survey of women between 42 and 60 uh, who have experienced mental health challenges during this time of their life, or they think they have. It doesn't have to be like a diagnosed thing, but be self self-diagnosed, I guess. And um, yeah, I'm examining their experiences. And the question that I'm actually answering, I guess, are what are the mental health needs of perimenopausal women and how are they being met by our provincial health care? Does perimenopause simply mean that you are approaching or somewhere around menopause? Yeah, great question. Yes, so there is a period of time before menopause happens, which is really just a moment in time, a, a day, I guess. And a lot, there's a lot of hormonal fluctuations, and there could be a lot of physical and mental uh, experiences that go along with that. Uh, so it's, it can be any length of time. There's not, no real way to know if you're in that stage, um, but it does. It can last for several years. How do you incorporate, because I know that you said, and I remember in your email, when you're talking about uh, cognitive issues or emotional health or mental health, whether it be you identified that yourself or you had a formal diagnosis, how do you incorporate both into the same data set? Because obviously there's a distinct difference whether or not you've been formally diagnosed by a uh, health professional or not. Yeah, so this is, yeah, well, this is a, an exploratory kind of research. It's, it is sort of a, a beginning stages of research. So what might happen is some other research might come out of this, like, okay, that might be a question that comes out of this research. Well, we didn't really um, separate the groups of people that were formally diagnosed versus those that are self diagnosed and um, personally I don't think it, it matters it's okay. because it's about your lived experience your own personal experience also inside this world I mean any research that's going to be conducted now or in the next few years for instance will have a distinct overlap and implications of the pandemic because it was pre-pandemic we were talking about one in five Canadians had an issue with their mental well-being now it's one in four or their mental illnesses now it's just changed so dramatically. How do you think that impacts the survey and the data that you compile? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, not really sure how it'll impact. You, you may see some increases in uh, uh, mental health challenges. Um, and maybe if this research was done 10 years down the road, it might look different. Um, so that's a great question and something to consider when the results come out. Um, to consider in further research. Yeah, and even if the data had been or the research had been done 10 years ago for something to compare it to, it might be quite illuminating. So I don't know if you want to give away anything specifically that's going on inside the, the numbers of questions or the survey itself. But what are some of the more common questions you will be asking that are of interest to you? Yeah, so the survey takes like probably 10 minutes or less. It's not a long survey. Uh, the first few questions are criteria-based, so you have to fit into the criteria in order to answer the remaining questions. There is a question on physical, physiological symptoms, and then there's a question on what kind of mental health 
uh, or emotional health symptoms that you have and their severity. Um, and then there's some open-ended questions that women can share more information if they like. And there's questions about how they manage their mental health during this period of time. So um, what did they use? What kind of services did they use? Did they access the Newfoundland healthcare system? Did they um, do alternative type of uh, um, modalities? And then what those experiences were like for them, how positive or, you know, did it work for them? Um, so really, we're just getting an, a bit of more insight into what are women doing? What are their needs, first of all? And what are they doing about it? And then, you know, did they use a healthcare system and was that effective? And this is a question based on ignorance as a man. So I know that, of course, it would be different for different women for a variety of reasons. And I mean by that going through menopause. But does every woman experiencing or living with menopause have a direct intervention or interaction with the healthcare system? Or is that just based on the severity and symptoms? Yeah, no, definitely not. Uh, it does depend on their own personal choice, their symptoms, what they decide to do. They might have severe symptoms and not go to healthcare, right? And they might have some not so severe and go to healthcare system. So it really depends on the person. What type of healthcare intervention is there during menopause? Like, what do women go to get? I, I suppose there are some pharmaceuticals that deal with. I mean, I hate to be saying these things because I have no earthly idea, like whether it be hot flashes or emotional issues or what have you. So what kind of interventions do we actually see? Yeah, so I think that's part of the um, research, you know, like I think what what we're starting to see is that women don't really know what's out there and they don't really know that they can, some do, but many women are, you know, saying they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. So what interventions are out there? I have no idea. You know, so uh, there's lots of ways so that women are coping or, or managing, and some of them are just health and well-being, you know, mind, mind, body practices, meditation, acupuncture, you know, some of these more natural routes. And then there's also women that use uh, hormone replacement therapy and, and more medical routes. So, again, just kind of getting a sense of what women are doing and and. So so far, some of the results are coming out that they don't really know a lot about this. Fair enough, because I know absolutely nothing. Other yeah. than other, you know, some conversations inside my own social circles at our age, uh, there is one of the criteria, criteria participation uh, issues regarding you cannot be currently hospitalized for mental health. Does that also exclude you if you have been hospitalized in the past? No, it's only for current, and that is really an ethics kind of, you don't want to get someone who's already experiencing a crisis to have to go into answer questions about their mental health currently. That could just activate them a bit. And I've asked the same question about Dr. Holly Etchigiri last week about her research project. Is people now more and more aware of their personal private information regarding whether it be finances and or medical history? How was the data secured and disseminated? Yeah, Um, so that is all reviewed by the Ethics Committee, and um, it all has to be under lock and key, basically. It is an anonymous survey, so there's no link between a person that answers the survey. I don't know who answers the survey. There is an optional question that is not linked into the survey, whether they want to be included as um, or considered for a focus group, so I would have emails for that. 
but that is 100% their personal choice. Um, so the data has no identifying information in it, and it is stored under lock and key for the required number of years according to Memorial University's policy. I think it's seven years. Um, and everything is encrypted. Um, yeah, so it's mostly all electronic information, and so it will all be under encrypted, uh, password protected, and all that stuff. So, Tina, for females 42 to 60 years of age, where do they have to go? What do they need to do? Yeah, so the easiest place to go is the Facebook page. You do not have to be like the page, or it's a group. You do not have to be part of the group in order to answer the survey, um, but the survey link is there. So the Facebook group page is called Perimenopause Questionnaire, and um, the survey link is in on the page. And there's also, I'm, I'm sharing different resources and information about perimenopause and menopause in that group as well. So, yep, the perimenopause questionnaire is a Facebook group, and you can go there and get the link to the survey. Appreciate the time this morning, Tina. Good luck. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That's Tina Pomeroy. She's a graduate student at the Faculty of Education, Counseling Psychology at Memorial University. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Tom, you're on the air. I wanted to start by continuing my campaign to request that people bring reusable coffee and teacups to their local coffee house. It makes a big difference, and it's, and it's a great way to for everybody to kind of connect to the problem. You can see it visually and save money and get more coffee, and it's a win-win. I want to just... Cliff started off the call today, and I know it's difficult being a politician in Canada, especially when you're trying to get elected and you're not the party in power. And, I, and I, he did acknowledge how complicated it is, and it's very complicated. But the straw man argument that there's no point doing anything because of China... Um, when China is racing to become, you know, they're 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 bringing more more nuclear, more solar, more wind on power uh, online than. Well, yeah, they are burning coal, but their objective is to. To to think long term, and they've been doing it for a long time, and 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 you know we can, we can learn from them, and and, but at the end of the day. Unproductive or inefficient activities, which is basically what it is when you, when you burn a fossil fuel to propel a vehicle. So much waste is actually just heat, and and when you when we look at that waste, there's there's better ways and and uh, more efficient ways to do everything, and and taking that kind of long term approach, the fuel standards and and you know I, I don't want to give the government permission to do any taxing because they then turn around and waste our money when they tax us. Unfortunately, so. And you know, it, and and when we think about that, every politician, everybody who has their hands in our pockets needs to realize their job is not to save the world. Their job is to try and look after our best long-term interests, which aren't always the same thing. Uh, but when they take money of our pockets, they, I don't think they really realize it a lot of times. They give it to people who are way better off than the people they're taking it from. Sure. You know, uh, 
Many Canadians, certainly, certainly every single Canadian who's opposed to a carbon tax, and look, people don't like to be taxed. It's just nature of the beast. And they don't really want to hear this because, look, China is the biggest emitter in the world. They do indeed to continue to add coal-fired generation, but at the exact same time, they've been the world's fastest and largest growing producer of renewable energy for more than a decade. In 2020, the, the grid in China was 33% carbon-free. They have an 80% target for 2035. They're talking about building 145 gigawatts of wind and solar this decade. So, you know, I, I know why people include China in the conversation, but I've never understood why throwing our hands in the air makes much in the way of any sense. The Chinese bill for investment in clean energy so far this, uh, this decade is over $540 billion. China emits eight, around eight tons per capita. Norway, which is a, co a country that a lot of us would love to emulate for a whole bunch of reasons, is almost 100% EV sales now, if not 100% EV sales. Yeah, they bought those sales, but anyway. Well, they set it up. It was good long-term planning, which is what we're doing as a country, too. But Norway actually is 7.5 tons per capita. So Norway per capita produces less carbon than China. However, Canada is about 17% and Newfoundland around 19%. So we have a long ways to go before you know, we can make comments about China or, or Norway. Uh, people will continue to do it. We'll just try to put some numbers in there. And, you know, there's only so many things we can control. And outside our own borders, not so much. Maybe some controls associated with international trade agreements and what have you. But those also come with caveats that are broad. Uh, anyway, you want to talk about hydro, Tom? I do. So I drove by house on Sunday, and there was a gentleman unloading bats of insulation and and I was thinking to myself, that, you know, that guy or that family is, is making those necessary investments. And, you know, last week we touched on it briefly, but in the, in the 2000s, mid-2000s, Hydro was working with Newfoundland Power, and the goal was it, we'd, we'd spent all kinds of money on consultants to analyze the demand and the waste that was in our system, so both on a commercial and residential basis how much we were wasting when it came to not having insulation or our lighting or our heating or our motors that we were using. And they identified a lot of areas we could save. And, the, and you know, our 2,000 homes was part of that. And then, then we had a government that came in and decided that instead of focusing on demand side, which is what that is when you look and see how you can manage the overall system better to eliminate demand, because Newfoundland Labrador produces if we could manage demand, we would produce enough from renewables other than on, say, our remote coasts um, that we wouldn't need Holyrood. The issue is that there are these peak times, and, and, and they're in the morning and they're in the the uh, late afternoon, early evening when when we turn on all our ovens and we have all our heat going, and, and that's the point when we need all all the high levels of heat, and that's when high, that's why when Holyrood needs to work. But unfortunately, the way Holyrood is is designed. You just can't turn it on and turn it off. It's not like a generator. It's, you know, once it's up and running, it's more. It's, you just can't turn it on, and turn it off on an hourly. It takes a couple of days to get everything running. So, so here we are again, almost in the exact same situation where, you know, we could be looking at demand side management. And and when I look at that, you know, a lot of times people talk about EVs and how the fact that they're obviously being charged by electricity. And you know one challenge with that, of course, is when people plug their cars in, then people are installing, relatively speaking, fairly high-demand 
chargers up to 50 amps, 240, which is which is actually more than even your oven would be. Now, now there's two parts to that. First of all, you don't read. Most people are, are, don't have the type of they're not driving enough that they need to have their car charged up as quick as that would would give. But let's just say you you wanted to be able to do that. Well, you could do it overnight. With, and and the new chargers as well as the cars are all programmable as to when they can charge. And the new chargers as well, many of them are programmable as, as to how much demand they'll draw. So even though they have a capacity of 50, they could be set at 15 amps. So that's an example of how we don't need to just put a you know, pedal to the metal and say we want to have it all when we want it. So so that would be like needs versus wants. So in case I just got a new vehicle and I've got it set up now that it won't charge during those peak times. Now, in the summertime, is less of an issue because during the summertime, we don't come close to our hydro capacity on the island grid or, or the Labrador Island link and all that stuff. But, but, you know, this is the type of conversation that our leaders, in particular Newfoundland Hydro and our minister who would be responsible for them, they don't seem to want to have with us. And, and maybe maybe they think that the resident of Newfoundland Labrador either don't care or aren't capable of comprehending or whatever, but, but I, I would disagree with that. I, I, I think that's, that's incorrect. In Ontario, they have a bunch of different demand-side management, and they have smart metering. So, you know, I, I would like to call on the province slash hydro slash Newfoundland Power to look at smart metering. You actually can sign up for a program in Ontario right now, and it's focused on EVs, but because, because of the EV adoption in Ontario... But you can sign up and have 2.4 cents per kilowatt hour charge. It only starts like after 11 p.m., but during the daytime, it's 24 cents. So, you know, the idea being everybody's going to wash their laundry. They're going to set up their hot water boilers. They're going to do everything. So just char- their car charging, heating, and everything will happen overnight. You know, I, I think that's the kind of conversation that we can have. We've got a great company, MISA. And they have these smart meters, which can be set up. You control from your phone. But in in some parts of North America, they're working with utilities where the utility can actually control the heat or cool cooling in your house, so that sure. to to avoid brownouts. Yeah. And Misa made a big purchase to get into the industrial space too, not just residential, which is going to be massive opportunity for them. They're an impressive group. Uh, Tom, I appreciate the time. I'm going to get one more on before the newscast. Okay, everyone. Take right. care. Stay Thank safe. Bye bye. All right, let's keep going. Line number three. Paul, you're on the air. Hi, Paul. Paul on line number three. You're on the air. I'm going to put Paul on hold. So, uh, also inside the world of hydro. It would be interesting. I know there's a media briefing coming today from Minister Andrew Parsons regarding some amendment of the legislation surrounding the PUB. But it would be nice to get some information about just what kind of work has been done by the 2041 Analysis Committee. It doesn't mean we have to show our cards with all the negotiations that we assume are ongoing with the province of Quebec and Hydro-Quebec regarding the implications of 2041. And every now and then when we mention that, someone says, you know, well, 2041 is so long away. Why do we care? There's so many things right in front of us. 2041 is just happens to be the expiration date. All sides need to know exactly what it's going to look like well in advance 
to prepare for what the future holds. I mean, per, uh, absolutely, the province of Quebec needs to know if 15% of their energy for domestic and export use comes from the Upper Churchill, they'll need to know. So this is going to happen and come to a head sooner than later. And then questions surrounding the next 18 years and what they look like and whether or not there'll be a change in the percentage of revenue coming from the Upper Churchill to either province. And just in general numbers. It's coming up around $30 billion for the province of Quebec and Hydro-Quebec and around $3 billion for us. So maybe there's some redress coming there, but it'd be great to know what the 2041 committee uh, has done with their analysis, just of what the province needs to know about what the actual implications are. Not to get into the the negotiating rooms with the two representatives, whether it be Legault, Fury, or Hydro-Quebec, or Hydro, or Jennifer Williams at Hydro. Anyway, yeah, will I take the break for the news? No? Okay, we'll take him. All right. Well, I try. After the news, Dave, I couldn't uh, make that out. Is it take it now? Take it now, thumbs up? Okay, let's go to the news. When we come back, we're talking about Mother Hubbard's cupboards. We'll find out more about that after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Paul, you're on the air. And how are you, sir? Good, sir. How about you? Oh, not bad. Top show. Good weekend. I had a great weekend. I had an awful lot of grunt work to do with cleaning up the yard and all those maple buds and stuff, but got it done, so that's a good thing. Yeah, I did the same thing, but uh, I noticed a lot of these Mother Hubbard's covers getting around in the communities. And listen, it's a wonderful thing. You know, there, there is people out there that, uh, you know, are a little hungry, and but one of them is in a bad spot. Where is There's it? a lot of controversy about the one in the front of the town hall in Boots Now... You know, it is a beautiful thing, but there seems to be one person that's going back and forth and emptying it out at all times. Oh, there, there's a bunch of cameras pointed at this thing for body security. Now, indiscretion, I think, with these coverts is the whole key. But this one is in a bad spot, and it seems to be there's one person emptied out, and the people that need it are not getting it. Uh, that's basically what I just... Pretty well, one to call for. You know, like I, I, I like to donate my time to a little bit, and you know, give the people a few. But listen, if people hungry, and I got no problem uh, doing up a few fries and a bit of steak for them, and send them on the merry way. But uh, you know, these Hubbard, this one is in a bad spot. Controversy, and you know, like people are upset over. It. So I don't, I don't know what to, you know, like I've tried to find out who put it there and whatever. You know, like maybe we can change the location of it. You know what I mean? But other than that, yeah. all the rest of these Mother Hubbards are wonderful. But this one is causing grief, causing problem between the needy and people who need it and people who don't need it. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm trying to get at there? I do. Look, I mean, they're all well-intentioned and people are displaying their big heart and wanting to help. But, you know, they ask people to use discretion and to realize that there's someone else hungry or needy coming behind you. So don't empty it out. I'm just wondering why that would be a bad spot, though, because let's say they moved it to another location of Pooch Cove. Wouldn't the same person be willing to empty it regardless of where it was? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. See, you know, like, so, I, I, I don't know, sticking on my line. I got no problem with it. Listen, you know, like, I, I'm, I'm pretty well, I try to be discreet when I help people, you know, in certain ways, because they want to be discreet. You know, I, I, I've left my house, and my wife has left the house, and done a few deliveries for you know, like the food bank, you know, like you know, emergency things, and it's private. And that's the way we keep it. Mm-hmm. And we're asked to do that because it's private. And that's the way it stays in my head, my wife said, and everybody else's. 
you need help, I'll give it to you. And, you know, like, watching this and see, you know, like, I'm, you know, like, the man has a pile of cameras pointed at it, and for his own security, because of where he lives, you know, it's a funny area where he lives in front of the town hall and the fire department and all that. There's a lot of activity here in the nighttime. Some of it malicious and whatever, but, you know, that's what the RNC, you know, control that for. But yeah. food, you know, it is important. Of course it is. And I don't know if there's anything can be done about someone who wants to or is willing to empty it out versus just ask them to stop doing that because of the obvious reason. There's someone come behind them that wouldn't mind getting something for themselves for a bite to eat that evening or what have you. So I get the concern. There's also yeah. uh, someone who put one up in our neighborhood. And this was library. Uh, it was a library. So there's books in there. And one yeah. day I was just walking up the road and I saw someone who's about my age in his 50s. He, ha he okay. went off with like a dozen books, and it says quite oh, clearly, okay. you know, take That's one okay. and put one in. So, and I was oh, thinking, yeah. why are you doing that? Just why don't you come one by one, take one, read it, bring it back, take another one, read it. And he told me to mind my own business. <laughs> and yeah, well, so listen, be it, but, I yeah. get that too, right? Yeah. But uh, listen, the words they used are probably not, not as nice as what you just said, but no, it is what it is. Yeah, no, he, he offered uh, the F-bomb on top of it, but, yeah. you know, I don't care about that stuff. But anyway, oh, same as me. By my, you know, I, I'm famous for the F bomb. You know, nice ways, bad ways, whatever it is. And you know, I, 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 I bite my tongue when I got to. Yeah. Ho hopefully, people will just, you know, use some restraint. I, I understand the temptation to take what you want, but you know, that's there's a widespread need in the community, which is really unfortunate yeah. when you think about how many people need one of these Mother Hubbard's cupboards or need to avail of a food bank. But I understand your concern this morning, Paul. Yeah. Maybe we'll see but what the town has to say. And listen, you know what? Well, I, I post the town, and, and we're, we're uh, nobody's sure what to do about it. Really. You know what I mean? You know, it is a wonderful thing. And how do you cut off a wonderful thing that helps so many people because of one person or two people? You know what I'm saying? I think we just have a reasonable conversation with whoever might be the person emptying it out and see if we can curb their behavior. But I appreciate the time this morning. Maybe we'll see what the town has to say. Perfect, buddy. Let her go. Thanks, Paul. Fill your boots. Thanks, Paul. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Ray, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well. Mm. Thank you. How about you? Oh, good. Thank you. Good. Just calling in about uh, Mud Lake. I, and I know that uh, John Chason was on, uh, I think, your show on... Uh, Friday, so I just wanted to follow up. Uh, there were some issues I think that uh, that, <clears throat> that uh, you may want to discuss with respect to the ongoing class action, with respect to the uh, flood uh, of Bud Lake. Sure, which happened on the 17th of May in 2017. Folks are still waiting. We're waiting on Hydro to disclose what's referenced as millions of pages of documents. Curiously, Ray, and we'll, we'll get your perspective on what's going on and your thoughts on the matter. We actually, uh, through John, asked him to reach out to the lawyers, see if they'd be willing to come out and talk about the process of where we are. And they're coming on tomorrow. Representative Wagner's Law, which is in Halifax, Nova Scotia, they will be joining us at around 10 a.m. tomorrow to fill us in on the legal side. But what's your own personal situation? Oh, th well, this is Ray Wagner. <laughs> We're, we, uh, we, uh, apparently, we called in a day early. Oh, I didn't even acknowledge the uh, surname on my screen. I apologize for that, Ray. So I guess you were well aware yeah, we're having you on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no. If you're happy to chat today, it would be uh, great. I'm actually in court tomorrow, so I can't, uh, I can't appear tomorrow. But uh, happy to ha happy to discuss the case today. Uh, are you okay to do that? 100 percent. I just uh, I was caught off guard. I was anticipating your call tomorrow. Okay. 
So yeah, sure. Josh Asong called, and there was some issues surrounding whether or not you accepted any provincial compensation, which was upwards of mm-hmm. $270,000. It came with the caveat that you had to relocate from Mud Lake. So can you give us a clear understanding about the implications of accepting compensation, whether it be from federal emergency assistance funds or this provincial offering? What's the case? Well, the, the first thing that we were concerned about uh, <clears throat> with respect to this is, uh, is what has happened with the federal emergency uh, funds. And the funds that were sent uh, back uh, to, to deal with the emergency in the acute period right after the flood, uh, the province had put in uh, the documentation that people had to sign off their rights against the province with respect to uh, what had happened to them, uh, and uh, which would also uh, would have included uh, CORE at the time. Uh, and so uh, <clears throat> we were very concerned about that, and uh, the documentation that we have seen so far doesn't seem to go and try to, try to sneak in a uh, release of their claims with this um, uh, this uh, relocation fund. So the first, uh, first thing to note, of course, is uh, uh, you know we're always concerned about how that impacts the class action. Uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, sometimes uh, defendants, whether it be corporations and sometimes governments, uh, unex- uh, unexplainably, uh, want to uh, what we call gut the class. In other words, uh, to settle part of the, the claims that are in the class action, outside the class action, uh, so that it makes it less desirable to move ahead with the class action because the economics change. Uh, and here, you know, that is a, a possible issue. I don't, frankly don't know why they don't want to try to settle the whole uh, class action as opposed to trying to pick away at it like they, uh, like they are. Uh, I should also say that we're not going anywhere, so we're going to follow this through to the end, irrespective of what uh, the province does. So if somebody uh, accepts uh, the relocation fund, that's their prerogative. Uh, we, they're unrep- they should know as well that they're unrepresented because we don't represent them in that capacity. We represent them in the class action. So if they do accept the, the funds, uh, and, and they're negotiating with the province, not really an effect on their own, unrepresented, which is a problem in itself. They do accept it. <clears throat> then uh, that's fine, uh, and, uh, you know, that's their own personal prerogative to do so. It doesn't eliminate all their claims. Uh, a lot of the claims relate to, of course, the stress, the post-traumatic stress that people have suffered, the, the anxiety and fear every night uh, that there's going to be another flood. So the psychological harm is quite significant. If you talk to any of the residents in Mud Lake, you'll be quick to understand uh, the uh, harm that has been caused to them uh, on an emotional, psychological basis. They've also lost a lot of their equipment. Uh, they have had a deterioration in their house and the value of their house. And uh, frankly, uh, the, the money that is being offered uh, is uh, is not sufficient to cover all their losses with respect to uh, the value of their house and what it's going to cost to relocate to a new house with those funds. So it puts them in a very, very difficult economic situation, and people have to make their own choices as to what they will do. But there is no, as far as we know uh, so far, no release of the claim against uh, Nalcor or or Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, uh, as uh, they're the only remaining defendant now. And so uh, we'll continue with the case, and, uh, you know, the clients can take uh, the, the funds if they choose to, and they can go their merry way with respect to that. But they also have to understand that the services will be cut to them. 
and which raises kind of an interesting component because, of course, as you know, uh, much better than I, uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, the, the relocation of communities, small communities in, in, in the outport areas. And they usually have a, a plebiscite or a, a referendum in that community to decide, as a group, do they want to relocate? Here, this hasn't been done. Rather, it's been done to pick away people individually and cause it. And that, in a, that process in and of itself is, causes an awful lot of stress and uncertainty uh, with uh, the individuals that we represent in the class action. So it is very problematic, problematic uh, in terms of how government is treating its, its citizens, uh, in terms of uh, the tactical uh, way that they're approaching this litigation, it, it's very problematic, and one has to question the morality of that, why they're proceeding in this fashion, and why uh, they don't have impressed the NALCOR to sit down and resolve these claims. These claims are not, we're not talking hundreds of millions of dollars here, we're talking, these are, in the, in the context of class actions, are relatively modest and easy to resolve. But instead, we're going to spend millions of dollars on litigating it uh, with millions of documents and prospect of many more years of litigation, uh, to, uh, which could easily be turned into uh, compensation and resolve the matter, and people could be on with their lives. Instead, they choose to cause additional stress. Nalcor, which is now Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, of course, is a crown corporation. They like to pretend that it's arm's length. It's governed by its own separate piece of legislation. When the province was successful in their appeal to be backed out of this class action, but at the exact same time, offering that caveat to the $270,000 when it seems like they want it both ways here, whether that be a morality issue or a legal issue, because wouldn't the entity being hydro be able to offer that as a requirement to accept compensation dollars because this really does feel like having your uh, wanting your cake and eating it too. Yeah, it, it, it strikes me as very tactical. I mean, it's tactical to try to get the government off. Frankly, we disagree with the Court of Appeal decision, and all due respect, we do, disagreed with it. We chose not to go to the Supreme Court of Canada because, frankly, we were going to waste money and time through that process, and that uh, that was not uh, helpful to the residents. We still had a major defendant in Alcor who were operating uh, uh, the uh, the dam and building it uh, at great public expense. Uh, it, but so we did. We made a tactical decision not to do that. Now, so the, so the government now is in the background, not a defendant, but is now taking ta doing a tactical maneuver uh, to try to undermine the class. And so, you know, that's really problematic in my mind. Why don't you just deal with it? They're your citizens. Do you have a responsibility to care for them? Why don't they just go and resolve this matter? And they don't have to admit liability. All settlements that we do in litigation, the defendant says that this is not an admission of liability. And they keep saying, well, we're concerned about additional floods. Well, you should be concerned about additional floods because you change the water courses in a material way. Sedimentation has caused a, a change, a total change in how that water flows down lower than the dam. And this is endangering the communities. And not only Mud Lake, but it's also of serious concern to a, to a Happy Valley in certain areas in terms of that, are, that could be prone to another flood uh, if a similar circumstances arise uh, in, in, in terms of uh, what had happened. And, uh, you know, and Alcor says, oh, okay, well, we had a, an exceptional amount of rain. Well, I don't know if anybody in Alcor has been listening to the radio or television, but global warming is coming on your way, buddy. 
And, uh, you know, these are, these are not untoward events. It's 200 years they never had a flood like this. Now they changed the course of the river, and now they flood out the community, and now they want to divide and conquer them. you got to ask the big question is, where's the government morality in this, at this time? So, you know, the incredible amount of rain, but there was also implications of, I think it was called frazzle that had uh, piled up around the dam. So they brought in somebody, some engineer or wh- whatever the case may be, that said they could not draw a direct line between either the uh, ice at the dam and the flooding in Mud Lake. Do you have evidence or expert opinion that it is exactly that, whether or not they're willing to admit liability? Because they've long stood on that report that they brought forward regarding an independent, quasi or so-called independent review of what happened. Yeah, no, we have our own expert opinion that says they were responsible in three material ways. So, uh, you know, so it's a battle of the experts. Look, uh, the reality is, not, and, I, and I cast no aspersions on any particular expert, but it, I, I've been in litigation for 43 years, and I've litigated some major piece of litigation, even in those in the environment. What I can say is that if you want an expert, you can find yourself an expert to say pretty near anything. Now, uh, that is... You know, so, you know, maybe that works on our side, too. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, you have to ultimately it has to come down to common sense. If you go down to your local brook and put a bunch of rocks across the brook, find out what happens down on the lee side of the brook. In other words, the downward side of the brook. What, see what happens over time. It doesn't take a, a scientist. It doesn't take an engineer. It doesn't take an environmental expert to tell you, that this the common sense is saying sedimentation is going to happen. The river courses in the brook is going to change. And so, you know, we can have all kinds of experts, and we'll have our experts, and they'll have their experts, mm-hmm. and they'll talk nonsense for, you know, for at a very, very great expense to everybody. Uh, and But we'll do it because we've done it before, and we'll continue to do it because we represent the citizens, and they're being poorly treated, and I don't like it. And so, you know, we're going to do the best we can with them, but the, – you know, uh, it's, it's a battle of the experts, so so be it. But common sense should prevail at some point. Yeah, you can reroute water with berms or whatever, but water is an unstoppable force. It's going to go where it's going to go. Uh, last one, and talk about the millions of documents that are yet to be disclosed from Hydro to your group. Is there a timeline where you can legally compel them to re- to uh, put them in your hands because it's going to take months to pour over millions of documents i would assume which of course will extend the life of this class action so what's the legal route to ensure you get these documents in a timely fashion or to be legally compelled to do it within say for instance end of the month or what have you yeah so uh well the documents were supposed to be produced in july 21st 2022 uh we're coming up to a year now that they were supposed to be produced. There was another segment supposed to be produced in September of 2022, and then November, a final tranche uh, in 2022. We've agreed back in July 29, 2022, uh, for a document exchange protocol so that these can be all shared electronically. Uh, we have uh, requested, followed up in August, February, March, May, uh, and the, the latest that we that we get that the uh, first tranche or initial tranche of documents has been sent to the uh, to their client by the lawyers and that we should have that shortly but no, we have no date uh, and so what can we do we, uh, we can go to court and uh, we can get an order compelling them to produce it 
you know, we take them by the word that they're going to provide it to us shortly. I don't know what shortly means. They haven't indicated, and, the, and uh, we're asking them when that's going to be. But we're getting we're at the end of our rope. We're at a year now. We produced our documents as as we were as the court had ordered uh, for everybody to deliver them back in July 21st, 2022. Uh, but uh, they seem to be ignoring those, and for some reason, I they had a. I don't. I can't understand because they had all those documents for the inquiry. I mean, why, do, why can't we get them sorted out and get them to us? And uh, you know, is it? Uh, and again, it's, uh, we often see that in litigation, whether it's true here or not, where delay, delay, delay is a tactic for the defendants because they want to frustrate the plaintiffs uh, from bringing their action and uh, and uh, either going away or, or settling for modest amounts. That's a tactic that's often used. Whether that's being used here or not, I don't know. You have to ask them. But right. it's a year, and we and we're running out of patience. Right. Really appreciate you making time for the show. Sorry, I was cut off guard with uh, who you were when okay, I answered no. your call this morning. But I uh, thank you for your time. Okay. Well, I, I love listening to your show, and I love the uh, the item beforehand. It's great to see uh, people doing good things for other people. Uh, thank you for. Uh, for following up on that, and uh, was, I was happy to hear that. And so, thank you. Uh, I always love Newfoundland, Labrador. It's my, my one of my favorite places. My wife's from there. Spent a lot of time in St. John's, uh, up in uh, Kings Cove, and uh, so I have a lot of a uh, lot of uh, relations and in in that area. So, anyways, you have a good day, uh, and uh, happy to chat anytime. I appreciate that. Stay in touch. Thank you, Ray. Okay, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. It's Ray Wagner, representing the class regarding the flooding of May the 17th of uh, May 17th 2017 Mud Lake some community of 40 people don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number two and say good morning to the executive director at the eating disorder foundation that's Paul Toomey Paul you're on the air hi Patty how are you this morning okay sir how about you oh no it's not bad at all few few wounds from all the garden work and that this weekend but hey how's it in that great I hear you <laughs> a few aches and pains too yeah <laughs> Anyway, Patty, just a, a quick call this morning. Um, uh, our first 50-50 sweep ended uh, on May the 15th, and uh, I wanted to say thank you to you because every time we talked about it, we we sold tickets, which has been fabulous. Uh, the end result was that uh, Lady Amatara Jackman won $1,901 out in Cornerbrook. So awesome. Great success on the first one. Glad to hear that. Yep. And I just want to let everybody know that draw number two is now underway with a draw date of August 15th. So, of course, if you want to get tickets, you can uh, uh, come come to our office, call our office at 709-722-0500, uh, send us an email, info at edfnl.ca. Either way, we can get you tickets for the, the next 50-50 sweep, which uh, ends on August the 15th. Paul, are you able to speak to the eating disorder-related call we had last week or the week before regarding someone who was deemed ineligible to be part of the program? Um, Patty, no, I cannot speak to individual cases, uh, and and I will maintain that. And and as you know, the foundation is an independent organization from healthcare, but uh, we do follow rules of privacy and that sort of thing. And uh, and I, you know, my preference would be not to speak to the issue. What I can say is that. Uh, uh, I don't think it's a people issue with uh, with the whole program. They have very dedicated, loyal people over there. Their problem is they might not have enough people, and there are areas where 
they need more resources, and the transitional psychologist is probably one area where they do need additional support because people are on waiting lists, waiting lists that are too long, and waiting lists are closed because they're too long. And, and that's not an acceptable thing, and it's certainly something that we will discuss with, uh, with Eastern Health and, and, in fact, have been discussing with Eastern Health over a period of time. But to talk to the individual case, uh, no, I think that's pretty much off limits for me. Fair enough, because, you know, it was a very troubling set of circumstances for that individual and her friends and her family, and I completely understand. So I don't know who I can get to speak to that because I get it's a personal matter, but even in general terms, eligibility, who should be prioritized to get that type of help is something that I think I don't know how to explore it any further, but I think I'll try. Yeah, well, um, certainly, I, I think it's it's uh, well, I guess we call it Newfoundland healthcare system now yep. issue, uh, and perhaps offline, uh, I might be able to uh, give you some direction on on that particular piece. I appreciate it because you know, the unfortunate reality is we see the numbers growing, the numbers of people turning to your foundation, and what kind of help they can expect, and how to turn to get it, and what have you. So, I appreciate the update this morning, uh, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, and once, and, and I guess Patty, the the thing is, once somebody is in the healthcare system, it becomes the responsibility of the healthcare system to look after them, and uh, uh, b- because they do not have enough resources. You know, I, I think in my mind is not acceptable, and that's no different than the issues we face with emergency rooms closing in different areas of the province. We we know it's not acceptable, and somehow, some way, there has to be a way to overcome that figure figured out. I appreciate this, Paul. Thank you. Yep, I do have one more item. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, our Hope I Always Walk, our 15th annual Hope I Always Walk, is this coming Sunday, the 28th at. Registration at 10 o'clock, walk at 11. It's a leisurely stroll. It's at Monday Pond. Won't take a whole lot of time. Uh, pledge sheets are available through our office, or you can come by and just make a donation. But uh, we'd love to see a bunch of people come out Sunday morning at 11 o'clock and join us for the 15th annual Hope Always Walk. Glad to hear it. Appreciate the time, Paul. Good luck with it. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate the time. Pleasure. Anytime. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I know. Look, it does get tricky to talk about some healthcare related matters you know we can have people who are involved themselves directly to tell their story what becomes really difficult for anyone in the media and certainly for me is to get any reaction from either the health authority or the government on individual cases because they easily and in many cases rightfully so fall behind some privacy related matters nobody wants a government official airing their laundry in public necessarily but it is important to try to get answers about things like how does this happen? Who's eligible? Where are the shortcomings? Where are the gaps? What do we do to fill them? Because we're also talking about a not-for-profit at the Eating Disorder Foundation versus government operations. So it does become tricky. If you have suggestions on how we can do that appropriate follow-up, we're happy to take it on. Uh, let's try to get back on track with the breaks. So when we come back, topic up to you. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Jean, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Patty? Yes, it is. Oh, I don't know how to get around this. It's the fourth since I was down at the hospital. Is there anything you can, is that too long? I'm sorry, what was the question? No, the question is what they did to me while I was there. Uh, uh, Do I know what we're talking about? I'm sorry. 
No, I say I want to ask, is it too long to go into this question? Well, I don't know how long it's going to take, so why don't we start and see what happens? No, no, I don't mean that at all. I mean, it's not too long for me to go on and tell you about it. Go ahead. Just tell me what happened. Okay. No, I went into uh, OPD. I had a dizzy problem. So the doctor saw me, and he gave me some pills to take home. And I took them home, took them for a couple of days, and I didn't get any better. I fell down six, five or six times over a little chair I have here to steady me when I'm trying to get around. Okay. And I went down to the hospital. I had I had all my back beat up. And I went in, they put me up in the room. They knew I had fallen. Nobody looked at me. And they strapped my right arm onto the, the rail of the thing, the right arm now, very hard. And it used to release every little while. But in the meantime, there was no doctor looked at me. But he came in and he said, I think she's okay. I'll let, it, I'll let her go home without even looking at my back. And it was black and blue. And uh, he, he said, I got a thing I gave her some for uh, dizziness before that. He said, I think that'll do the problem. So he gave me a prescription. And, of course, they sent me on my way. I didn't know nothing about it. And I'm home now, and my back is really bad. And I have angina, and I hate to, and I'm going back down there again. I'm scared. And the next day, a few days, I went down after, took my son with me. I said, I can't walk. I'm going to go down and see, will they do anything for me? Excuse me, I got my throat dry. And uh, he came down with me. And I had my MCP number left her, so I went and gave my MCP number. And she gave it to me, and I said, can I see the doctor while I'm here? And somebody called my name, and they said, take her coat and put her down in the one, number one. So that's what we did. And I was there for about two or three hours. Nobody came to look at me. Now, in, in the meantime, before that, the doctor wrote me a prescription and he said he found a, a note on me about two years ago he wrote me the same prescription and I'd be fine so that's all I got to and I'm dying with a bad back so what specifically do you need that you're not getting Jean? I didn't get any x-rays or anybody to look at my back Nobody would look at me. And they sent me down in the last room, and there was nobody down there. Only I got my son to go. I think they would have put me back on the fourth floor if I hadn't uh, left. I left then. Yeah, so I don't know how or why it's determined that you don't need an X-ray when you have a I sore back around. I know I was black and blue all over because I don't know which way I fell over the chair wouldn't steady me. Wouldn't, like, I'd hold on to the chair and I'd just go on. 
do you have anyone that accompanies you to the hospital that can help you navigate it and help you be steady on your feet or something well, like that? Well, I'll never go down there alone again. But I think they would have put me up on the fourth floor my son had been with me or I hadn't left. I think I'm silly. Going down there twice, dizziness. And I, I really had it bad and falling around. I, I don't think there's many people go to the hospital, go to emergency just for fun. There must be a need. I think they need some help. There, there was a big need. I, my back's still sore. I can hardly sit up. I can't sleep at night. And there's a lot of people who goes down there like that. They put me down in number one with my son. And there wasn't soul in there. And I waited an hour or more, nobody came. And they checked all the people that was really full. Because she told, as soon as I said, I want to see a doctor, she said, take her coat and put, it, put her down in the first room. And that's all. I never see nobody after. I never talked to nobody. Well, uh, that's too bad, and I'm sorry to hear it, Jean. So whatever help you need, hopefully you're able to get it. So, so are you okay today or no? Oh, yeah, no. My back's so bad. Well, you take good care of yourself and whatever you need to do to get your back better, and let me know how you're doing in the future. I will. Take good care of yourself. Thanks. There's a lot more to it, but we won't go into that today. Okay, we'll try another day, though, Jean. Yes, thank okay. you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's see here. We did mention off the top, you know, whether it be hunters and some of the warnings associated with uh, the avian flu and how to safely handle the animals. And, of course, everything to do with the fishery. I believe we're going to have some time with Greg Pretty this morning, the president at the FFAW, about the outcome now that they're gone for the crap. And I did throw in, regarding the hunting, the moose licenses. Because I've heard an awful lot. So let me see if I can remember the number. I think there's 27,575 moose licenses this year. There are success rates that are pretty suspect in different parts of the province. And that's the concept of who gets a license and where the reductions in the moose licenses have happened. Jeff's next in the queue to talk about exactly that. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Hello. Hello. Yes, I want you to ask Greg Pretty that Ask them how many union people is out there paying union dues and how much do they collect every year. Why can't they pay uh, the fishermen that extra dollar or this slush money that they got? Why can't they take something out of that funding? I can ask them. Uh, no problem. So do you think it's a good idea that the union be in the business of topping up price per pound regardless of species? Sure they should. I mean, they take enough money from the fishermen and the fish plant workers. So, you know, we have that money there. That's that's the people's money you gave back to them. Why can't they give back to the fishermen? Why are we got to depend on, like, people like yourself, the taxpayers? Why provincial government and federal government got to pay for this uh, for the fishermen? It should never be. 
Yeah, I hear people uh, also suggest that whatever monies they have, they should begin to establish a pension fund, which is an interesting assertion, of course, for independent enterprise owners. Maybe that's not directly required, but for a lot of other people in the industry, maybe that would be a thought. But I'll put it to them. No problem. Why not? And ask them, like, where's this crab quarter that the union got? Why can't they give that some of that money back to the fishermen? What kind of quarter does the union have for crab? Well, I don't know. I hear, I hear talk of that, like, they got a, a huge quota. I hear all the way from zero to all sorts of numbers. Oh, that's, that's not happening. Uh, everyone knows the difference of that. It's, it's like the, the fish plant owners. Like, I heard a gentleman the other day on Fishery Broadcast that he, the union guy said he don't know nothing about that the fish plant owners owning enterprises. Believe you me, they own about 60% of enterprises. Say that part again for me, sorry. A lot of the fish plant uh, owners, like the big buyers, they own enterprises. And it's putting other fishermen's name that they want, no one want but to dictate them that they, they own those enterprises. That's I, I know fishermen that have sold enterprises to the fish plant owners. They bought them out for retirement. Yeah, well, I mean, there's an owner-operator legal decision in place that, you mean, you know, gone are the shore skippers and the owner-operators who own a processing plant or what have you that also have uh, boats on the water with IQs. I mean, I can ask him about it. I think that's probably a question for both the association and for Greg Pretty, but I'll ask him about the dues-paying numbers, the numbers of people paying dues, how much money they're sitting on, could it be utilized for a price-per-pound subsidy, and about owner-operator. No problem at all. All right, man. Thanks for everything. Appreciate the time. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, we haven't heard back because that was the union contacted us saying that Greg was available. So we'll see if he has time this morning. Let's go to line number two. Jeff, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you today? Excellent. Thank you. How are you doing? Good. I'd like to take a shout-out to Jean. I hope, uh, you know, everything works out for her. Sad to hear those types of stories online, you know, and I wish her the best and hope she gets the help she needs. Absolutely. Uh, Me too. Yeah, the reason for my call today, Patty, is uh, I'm a 26-year uh, Canadian Forces, Canadian Armed Forces veteran, and uh, we, we had a privilege as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces to be able to hunt in Newfoundland if we were born there and obviously joined to leave the province. So I had that privilege for the 26 years of my career, and I retired in 2017, and to my surprise, I found out uh, once you retire, you no longer have that privilege as a veteran. So I, I went a bit further to look into that, and I guess it, it's something that's been known. I just I just wasn't aware of it because it was a time for me to get back home, you know, and hunt with my uncle or a family member and and just enjoy the time back home. And I was a big game hunter before I joined, joined the forces. So I, I reached out to uh, Wildlife Head Office in, in Cornerbrook just to kind of inquire why that decision was made in the policy. And basically, uh, with very little compassion, uh, the person I spoke to said, you know, that's just the way it is. That's the policy. Uh, it's been like that for years. I get calls from vets all the time, uh, and we don't see it changing. So the reason for my call really is just to generate conversation about this. And, you know, sometimes I feel maybe I'm selfish to think I should have that privilege because I no longer live, live in the province, even though I, I visit quite often. But yeah, the purpose is just to get it out there and, you know, for other vets to maybe call in and, and see uh, what their side of the story is if, 
if they're affected by this as well. I remember when the that privilege or whatever the right word is was taken away or all of a sudden was being denied. So was it that you had to be not only an active serving member of the Canadian Armed Forces, but also living in this province to have a moose license in this province? No, no. Actually, the current policy now is you can live anywhere in the world. Okay. As long as you're, as long as you're an active member, you still can apply for the pool every year, which I've done uh, up until 2017. Um, now, this might add to the problem we're currently having with the, the limited licenses, obviously, if, if this change was made. But, and, and like I said, maybe, maybe it's a selfish thing for me to think, if I don't live home, you know, why should I have that privilege? Because, you know, as you know, it's, it's quite a different cost for someone to visit Newfoundland and hunt than it is for a, a resident to, to apply every year for the pool. Absolutely, and I'm not really sure. So who would have been, I guess it would have had to have been a relationship between the federal government and the province for this type of thing to take place because, of course, it's the federal government when we talk about the armed forces itself and the province when it comes to the number of uh, licenses and how they're distributed or what the eligibility might be. So I really don't know how to answer that question, but I'm happy to broach it with the province. I wonder what kind of numbers we're talking about. Newfoundland and Labrador has long punched above our weight with the number of uh, members of the armed forces that we have per capita uh, compared to other provinces. So I, well, I'm curious what the numbers might have looked like. Yeah, because I, I think we actually were pretty equal to Quebec when it comes to members. I mean, back, like I retired in 2017, but back in mid-2000s, I think we're at 20% or more of members from Newfoundland in, in the Canadian Armed Forces. But, uh, I mean, that's something that would have to be verified. That's just uh, a number I heard back then. But like I said, I mean, it's just to generate the conversation about it. You know, should should we not be eligible for that once we retire, or or should we, you know, keep that privilege? Because, you know, as you know, and and people might feel not feel compassion with this, but when you do sign up for the Canadian Forces, uh, chances of staying in Newfoundland is very rare. We have one opportunity in Gander and uh, and some small opportunities in St. John's, but other than that, you know, there isn't the opportunity to actually be posted back there. So I'm just wondering if, you know, if anyone out there has any information on this. I mean, the lady uh, did say, you know, I had the opportunity to write a letter to the minister uh, just to have it revisited, and, and maybe I will do that. But I just, I mean, the purpose is to generate, and I listen to your show often, no matter where I am in the world, uh, over the last 30 years. And I think this is a good good platform and forum to to get this out there. Absolutely, and I'm glad you uh, put it on my radar so I can uh, see where the follow-up can be. I suppose it would also include the vets active or retired to apply during the regular process so that we know we don't exceed the 27575 regardless of who gets it based on what program or what privilege, I think, is the word you use. It doesn't sound like an overly selfish uh, question or request to me in my ears. So, Jeff, I don't know how many people get to actually get posted up in Gander or some of the small opportunities in St. John's. Where were you posted over the years? I was in, uh, I was in Gander from 97 to 2001. Yeah, I had the privilege of uh, working with the search and rescue there uh, at the base. I appreciate your time. Thank you for your service, and I will absolutely put this in the ear of uh, Minister Bragg or whoever else is uh, responsible. Thanks, Patty. You take care, buddy. Very same to you. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. That's a good question. Uh, let's go to line number one. Leonard, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, buddy. Morning. I look for information about money now, not from you, but uh, I'm low on money the week because right back to uh, 
before the middle of last month, I lost me boiler and I lost me internet. I had to get a new modem and I lost me uh, batteries. I had to get new phones. So I'm just wondering, Patty, uh, when the check comes out for this month, it's a three, it's three banking days for the end of the month, but the last three banking, the last three days in the end of the month is Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday coming. So uh, can you find out what time the money is coming? Announce it on the next phone call or sometime, or I'll, I'll, I'm on your show anyway. So you're asking what the dates are for what, all age security? What date, or? What, date, what date will we get this check on, the 27, 28, 29 or what? Because they give you, the government gives you three banking days. you get, you got to get your check be three banking days before the end of the month. So Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday is the last three days in the month. But three banking days, that'll be only two banking days before the end of the month, wouldn't it? Uh, yes. So, so it could come on a 20, it could, should come to 26 or 25 or 27. I was wondering, could you find that out for shortly, Patty? Because I got to walk about two miles to the post office all the time, and I, got, I uh, don't want to walk down there to find out if there's any money in or the bank. You can't phone our bank. We just got a single bank in Harbor Grace, and I got to walk down there. That's the same distance. And I was just trying to get things good, friend. I got a leg. I had a leg operation, and it never worked out about six years ago. A new knee replacement, and I got all kinds of other ailments, but I'm not complaining too much about it. Okay, just uh, just so I know what I'm trying to find out. What check? Is CPP, All Age Security, Guaranteed Income all Supplement? All Age Security, yes. CPP, all Age Security. All Age Security for me is all in one. Okay. Yeah, I can find out exactly what the make date your, is. Make your own pension check. Yeah, okay, just see here. Uh, CPP, it's... You don't have to find out now. I can hear. I can hear you in the next hour. If uh, maybe uh, Williams will find out, Davy Williams or someone will find out. Yeah. Looks like May 29th. May 29th. Is the first Pardon? date. The May 29th is the first date I see. May 29th last was the first day you see. Yeah, it's, that's Monday the 29th. Yeah, but that's that's only that's that's only giving you two days before the end of the month. It's supposed to be three. Oh, I understand, but that's the date that pops up here. In uh, April was on the 26th, May on the 29th, June on the 28th, July on the 27th. Okay, okay listen, Patty, did you announce on the, t- on, the t- the, on the show there last week, one, one, one time on the show last week, about that grocery money was coming out? Uh, I didn't get it all, but I, I believe you said sometime in July? Yeah, the 5th. The 5th of July, the grocery money coming out, and how do it go again? Uh, anybody who was eligible for GST and filed their taxes last year, you will automatically get this one-time bump. Yeah, that's 225 for single, is it? Yeah. And what about uh, other people? Uh, families with uh, two children, $467, I think it was. Family with two children. Now, what about a family with one child? I think it was $181 uh, dollars per child. Okay, so they'll get the regular money, 225 plus 181 a person with one child. Yeah, whoever's a dependent, yeah. There's a lot of people asking me about that. I said, well, I'm no brain. I only got grade 10. I said, but I will phone Patty before it's all over and let you know. Okay, that makes sense, Patty. Yeah, July 5th for that one. Have a good day. You too. Someone else on. I got more tongue than me. Thank you. Bye. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Mark Turner. He's a manager of audiovisual archives for the Nanatsiovut government and the co-principal investigator on Uncommon Bonds. He joins us on three. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing? Thanks for taking a few minutes to talk. Happy to do it. Now, I said you were working with the Nazi government, but did not say the name of the society because I can't pronounce the word. 
<laughs> oh, halahatagi. In uh, Labrador, the uppercase K is like a kind of sound. Okay. I, I'm, and I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not a speaker, so I'm not going to pretend that uh, I'm pronouncing it entirely right, but oh, which is affectionately known in most of Labrador as the OK Society. Well, I'm glad I didn't try, but I'm glad that you offered. <laughs> so let's go on and talk about what, un, what Uncommon Bonds is. What is it? So this is a, uh, we call it a, a digital archival return project. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a big research project between Memorial and the Nazi government called Tradition and Transition among the Labrador Inuit. And during that project, um, it, it spans sort of like, like looking at all branches kind of of Labrador Inuit culture, but a lot of work was done with and around Moravian records. There was a number of people that were involved in this, genealogists, historians, and there was a real need to have like meaningful access to a lot of the Moravian records. So when that project wrapped, we never had an opportunity to do it in the context of tradition and transition. There was some uh, funding opportunities going around uh, for targeted digitization. And we were alerted to one that was available in the U.S. Uh, it's a funder called the Council on Library Information Resources. And we applied for it. And the idea was to work with one of our project partners specifically in tradition and transition, the Moravian Archives, that holds a whole bunch of records from Labrador to digitize their Labrador collections. So originally, when we started on Common Bonds, it was this kind of like smaller focus. But uh, COVID being, you know, what it was, uh, it scuttled a lot of our plans and a lot of our budget around travel. We were supposed to have a lot more people to come down to visit Moravian Archives, which is in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and spend time with the records there. Uh, that wasn't possible. So what we decided to do uh, as a committee was channel a bit of money into a website and to a portal that's going to make, uh, ultimately, we hope, uh, like the full range of Moravian records that have been digitized everywhere accessible to people via one sort of portal. So that's what we're doing right now. What type of information would we be talking about? Oh, I, I mean, you, you name it, it's sort of in there. I, I, the Moravians first came to Labrador uh, in 1752. Uh, that was their first attempt to, uh, to establish a mission station. Uh, obviously, they were planning it for a couple of years before then. So you got records that are spanning from probably 1740s right up until the present day uh, from various branches of the church. Now, the thing about the Moravian church, uh, unlike some of the other churches that went into, uh, uh, like that went into northern Canada, the Moravian Church was financed also to as a trade mission. So they would come into a place, set up a station, uh, they would trade with Inuit, and then the money that they generated from that helped to sustain those missions. So you can imagine what that means too for records. So we've got all kinds of trade journals, we have station reports, we have weather data. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, what, what are called church books or church registers, which lists uh, births and deaths and marriages. Uh, it, it, it's all in there. Music, I mean, it, like you sort of name it and we could probably find it. So I know the Moravians didn't have a permanent footprint in Labrador. How many missions would they have entertained since 1771? Well, I, I suppose permanent is, uh, it depends how you define it. Okay. Um, so, like, you know, the first attempt was 1752, just south of present-day Makovic, uh, in a place called Ford's Bite. But, uh, like, in all total, it sort of depends how you count them. Uh, I think there was something around, like, the ballpark of nine mission stations throughout, like, like, like at the maximum number uh, since the Moravians started coming to Labrador. So, that, you know, th this is between Kilimek, 
in the very north of Labrador, and it's an island that, uh, that borders Nunavut, uh, right down to the very south to, to present-day Makovic. So there's about nine different stations in there, and each one of those stations, for the most part, maintained their own archives. So all of those records, all of those church books, all of those trade missions, the trade information, all of the weather data, all of those station reports generated for every one of those stations between, you know, like 1771, as you say, as the establishment of Maine, up until like the 1950s. So it's an amazing amount of data. We know the relationship between the European settlers and the Labrador Inuit was troubled and violent at times. What role did the Moravians play? It's a complicated one, I think. Uh, you know, I mean, first and foremost, they came in as evangelists, so they had an evangelizing mission. And to them, that meant uh, obviously suppressing certain aspects of uh, of Labrador Inuit culture, what they considered to be heathen. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I they tried to position themselves, I think, fundamentally as kind of brokers, if not uh, uh, sort of benevolent gatekeepers, I think, between Inuit and this is my personal take, I'm sure that there's many others, but between Inuit and sort of uh, European presence, particularly in the south coast of Labrador, one of the pretexts for Moravians coming in the first place uh, was, you know, there was historically violent skirmishes between Inuit and European settlers in southern Labrador and around Grosswater Bay. So when Jens Haven came, who was the, the guy that set up the mission station, his pitch to Hugh Palliser, who was the governor of Newfoundland, was, look, uh, if you allow us to do this, uh, we can have all the trade here in the region, and we don't need to come out, and uh, and it's going to solve your violence problem, and then you can have a, a, a smooth operating fishery. So that was kind of the pitch, and, and that's kind of how the Moravians understood themselves. Obviously, that role changed significantly over time. Uh, they became, uh, uh, you know, uh, like one of the biggest providers of healthcare, certainly up until the 20th century when that was handed off to the IGA. So, I mean, they had multiple roles sort of over that 250-year period. You made reference to the fishery. So the Moravians, I think, are the first recognized Protestants in the world, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, maybe the Lutherans, Absolutely. I'm not sure. Is it, it is the Moravians? It is the Moravians. They predate the Lutherans uh, as a church. There's a guy named Jan Hus. Uh, who's like who's credited as being the founding father of the Moravian Church, and he came from like Moravia, this sort of like little region between like Czech, uh, Western Czech Republic, Poland, and uh, and East Germany. And this was I, I can't remember how many years he predated Luther by, but this is the end of the 15th century that Jan Hus started started the church. So social issues, obviously religious matters. Uh, did they play a role outside? I think you mentioned the fishery there briefly. So did they have any role in the development of the economy in Labrador as well? Uh, that's a good question. I I don't know that they necessarily, like, they certainly did. I don't know that you could necessarily trace a straight line between uh, their brand of sort of, uh, like, economic development and sort of what it is that we kind of have today. Uh, because so much of what they did was prepared for trade in international markets. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, very little of those goods that the Moravians were, like, preparing with Inuit in northern Labrador ever came to the island. Often these things, uh, there was a very famous mission ship called the Harmony through different iterations. Uh, and this was the ship that served, like, many of the global Moravian missions, and it would do these annual stops in Labrador. And then it would pick up the seal oil, it would pick up, you know, the salted fish, it would pick up 
sort of whatever it was that they were processing, but it would bring those things to European markets. So, I, I mean, in that sense, you don't have those same kind of historic connections right now, which itself is fascinating to see because you have all these records that put Labrador in, uh, in a global context in a way that, uh, that you kind of don't see it right now. So there's certainly there's a through line. I would just say it's probably not the most direct through line. What do we know about whether or not they were welcomed? Well, I think it's safe to say that the first crew were not welcomed, um, that, that, that the first attempt uh, didn't end very well. Um, uh, I think like seven or eight of the original uh, missionary party were, were killed uh, in a trade dispute uh, over some baleen. And then, you know, it, it sort of depends on whose account that you're reading here as well, right? But if you read the Moravian accounts from like the first successful attempt to establish the mission, this was got, uh, done by a guy named Jens Haven. Uh, he had spent a lot of time in uh, in Western Greenland. He had learned, uh, you know, an Inuit language. It probably wouldn't have been exactly the same as what was being spoken uh, in Northern Labrador, but he certainly learned enough that uh, that he could communicate. And if you read some of the early accounts, um, like he was received, I would say, with a degree of skepticism, but certainly not uh, not hostility. There was there was interest in it, in what he was doing, and he took his time to set up the mission. I mean, when he first came. Uh, I think his original base was in Carpoon, so he didn't even go to Labrador at first, and he would do sort of these annual like annual visits up the coast and start like making friends with Inuit. And then, you know, even after all of that, and even after Nain was established, then he started working with uh, local Inuit. There's a, a, a celebrated uh, female Inuk uh, leader named Mikak, and uh, she was instrumental in helping to get the Moravians in there as well. Uh, her husband, too, I think, and her son, uh, I, I can't remember which is which, but Tuklavina is one of them. So they were all, like, the Inuit themselves were also instrumental in in facilitating these relationships. So, I mean, there, there was certainly interest. I think that there was, uh, 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 like, and especially because Haven himself spoke the language, I think that there was... Uh, you know, some goodwill there, but it took a lot of local brokering as well to make this happen. And we all know the relationship between the, the victor and the spoils and who gets to write the history. Yeah. Uh, Mark, is there an event coming up to promote this, or is this a living, breathing uh, exercise or activity? Well, I would say it's a little bit of both. Uh, we have an event coming up uh, starting this Thursday. Uh, we're doing a series of four different open houses. Uh, so we're going to be in uh, in Goose Bay. Uh, our event in Goose Bay is this Thursday. Uh, it's at Ben Days. And then we're going to be in Nain on uh, on Saturday, uh, Hopedale on Sunday, and McCovic on Monday. And uh, uh, if you go to uncommonbonds.org, which is our website, you can get the full schedule there. But uh, the plan is to keep this going and to find more records. I mean, uh, you know, finding the records and digitizing them are sort of half the battle, right? We need to find other ways to make these records accessible and to get them out there and circulating. And because many of these records, too, exist in three different languages, you know, we need some we need feedback from the community in terms of how it is that people want to access these things, which is partly why we're doing these uh, these open houses coming up this week. I appreciate the time this morning and the uh, fun chat. Good luck with it. Thanks so much, Patty. Much appreciated. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Mark Turner is the co-principal investigator on Uncommon Bonds. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Greg Pretty, he's the president of the FFAW. He joins us next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. As advertised, join us on line number four is the president at the FFAW. That's Greg Pretty. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. 
Morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, I suppose. How about yourself? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. I suppose, like many, uh, whether it be reluctant to sign on to this agreement with the Association of Seafood Producers, but now your members, whether it be harvesters or plant workers, will be going at the crab. You know, just from a high level, what do you think was achieved here? Because they're going on the water today to fish for the 220 that was set weeks ago. Well, good question. There's two very significant points here that uh, that you need to know about. Number one, on the minimum of 220, that's guaranteed for the season. So that's extremely important. So there there will be no reconsiderations on that. Uh, what we negotiated uh, with uh, the ASP uh, group of companies was a 220 minimum. So what that really means, Patty, is if in fact the market sinks as it has, and the uh, the Erner Barry formula would spit out something like a buck eighty, like it would currently do. Uh, that's that's a lot of money in the pockets of harvesters in this province. That's about forty cents per pound. So that's extremely important. If we were faced with just the bare bones FOS of two twenty, the companies, of course, had a had an opportunity or had a mechanism to apply for reconsideration, uh, not to increase the price, of course, but to lower the price. So that's a, an extremely significant uh, piece of this uh, uh, deal. The other one that's equally important... Before we go to the next one, oh, didn't okay. the guarantee of 220, didn't the Association for Seafood Producers offer you exactly that over a week ago? There, was a, there were a number of iterations of that uh, from three weeks... To, to five weeks, to a full season, coupled with um, uh, overage issues that weren't agreed to. It came and went, and it, it was back on the table on Friday. Uh, so, therefore, uh, hence, the, hence the signature. Any change in trip limits with this uh, recently negotiated deal? Well, trip limits uh, will be discussed today with us as per uh, our announcement on Friday. The other issue I wanted to talk about, which is also very significant in this, because as you know, the market's been pretty flat uh, over the last six weeks or so. Uh, but it's not; it doesn't appear to be getting any worse. Uh, people are still hopeful that there'll be there'll be increases. But between four eighty-five or an Barry price to six dollars, there are four bumps in there where harvesters can pick up. For example, at 225, at the 485 Werner Barry, we 225, 495 Werner Barry would spit out 230, up to $6, where it could be 275 for harvesters. That is significant because it wasn't a part of the original FOS price. As you know, um, we spent a lot of time and money trying to achieve a formula. We, ultimately, it didn't happen. But through these sets of negotiations over the last number of weeks, we were able to agree, both parties agreed on a, a rudimentary formula, which will, in fact, if the market increases, spit out uh, increases to harvesters. That wasn't there in the original FOS. So that in itself is, is pretty significant on the rising market to be able to capture some of that. When I speak with people who are market watchers, whether it be on red meat, poultry, eggs, seafood, they talk to historical context, historical data. If the market softened early in the snow crab season, the likelihood of it rebounding became highly unlikely. 
And in addition to that, if there was a glut of inventory that led to a low price at the beginning of the snow crab season, just like the 225 they're getting in the rest of the Atlantic provinces, what's the hope or the consideration that anything's going to change? Or is the guarantee of a minimum 220 the, really the be-all and end-all? Because historically, a rebound with an already glut of inventory, now adding more inventory to the market, do you even re- realistically see any improvement? Well, let's look at uh, the, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a person to, who could speak on their behalf, but from my information at the table, uh, Newfoundland processors have, you know, have a long-term relationships with their American buyers. Uh, whether or not it increases is entirely up to uh, retail and, uh, and, um, and, and the service industry in the United States. So, so can it improve? The answer is yes, it can. Uh, will it improve? Uh, we don't know for sure, but the fact that it's bottomed out indicates that with the with Newfoundland crab coming into the market now, we have a uh, it's it's unlikely to get any worse than it is. And over the it's a commodity, so over the course of the summer, with more crab Newfoundland crab going into the market, we we'll just have to wait and see. I, nobody knows for sure, but there are people in the industry that anticipate. Um, uh, that it'll go into the to five dollar range. It may never go past six this year, but uh, you know, people in this province live in hope. There was during the pandemic when people weren't traveling, for instance, and their expendable monies allowed for some of the luxuries of life. You know, delicacies like a snow crab. And when you talk retail versus white tablecloth, during the pandemic, it was kind of a 65-35 split in favor of retail because people were cooking at home. It's absolu- It's almost flip-flopped in its entirety to be now back on the tablecloths as opposed to just simply going to the grocery store or your seafood shop. Uh, okay. So when it came down to harvester versus harvester, and one of the comments that you made early on was that some people would rather go bankrupt than the fish at 220. What changed? Well, a, a lot changed. Uh, when six weeks ago, harvesters, companies anticipated a rising market, and it didn't happen. Uh, that coupled with a guarantee that the price wouldn't go lower than 220 changed people's uh, perspective on, on the entire issue. We know, uh, as a union, because you know, we're well-connected through our committees and through our harvesters, that there is a significant portion of this year's fishery may not make it, may not make it. There may be bankruptcies and harvesters and plant workers may in fact have difficulty getting on EI, uh, uh, obtaining enough time for EI. So that's still a a major component of our work. We'll be meeting with uh, people in Ottawa to discuss that and, and to help to, to uh, harvesters as we go through this because you know well, where you started off there i think was very accurate i mean we're living the pandemic we're we're feeling the effects of the pandemic we didn't feel them in the last two years in the industry but we're certainly certainly feeling them now with the loss of uh, that uh, extra pandemic uh, money support money in the united states which as you say and you're quite right uh, uh reverse the retail and food service uh percentages so it's a tough one uh and there came a point uh in this over the six weeks where uh well it bottomed out it didn't rise so uh that changed the complexion of the whole whole issue 
when it comes to, it always felt to me that this was as much about seasons down the road as it was about this season. And you say that inside of this deal, it was uh, included the stipulation that the Premier and the government follow through when trying to rejig how we set prices in the first place. But when the province responded, they made no mention of a stipulation. So the union might want the price setting panel structure to change. ASP want, might, the ex might want the exact same thing. But what you want doesn't mean what you're going to get. So is there any assurances, written or otherwise, that there will be a change to the price setting panel next year? Because we could find ourselves right back to where we are right now, this time next year. Patty agreed. Uh, you know, much agreed. The um, nobody wants this again. Uh, one of the things this uh, six-week tie-up has has done is focused a very bright light on on what's wrong uh, with the industry w with respect to pricing and how much better an industry this could be if, in fact, we started uh, doing business properly. So, from that perspective, I have to thank the, the premier of the province for interjecting in, in this uh, situation on a number of times uh, because it, it's important. Uh, uh, he has uh, addressed uh, our bargaining committee uh, on this issue, and he has uh, said to us that, uh, once again, uh, there's no appetite for anybody in this province to go through this again, and what we should be doing is fine-tuning uh, the FOS system or, conversely, looking at a formula which will tie uh, this market, tie the prices to the marketplace, which will avoid these type of, uh, of situations. That's extremely important for, for the future. And it is uh, a strong component of moving forward uh, on this. So, you know, once again, I, I thank him for his, for his support on this. And, uh, yes, he's given us a, a personal uh, guarantee. It was never a part of the ASP deal. I mean, you couldn't incorporate the premier in a deal between ourselves and ASP. That didn't make any sense. No. But uh, he has he has spoken to to our committee. He's also spoken to ASP on that, and um, I, I'm, we're certainly prepared to take him on his word on that. What leads you to believe that outside buyers, look, I know the fishery is unique. You get so little for the raw material versus the end product. But what leads you to believe an outside buyer be willing to pay any more than 220 225 given the fact that the market is what the market is? And the market doesn't care what you think. The market doesn't care what Jeff Loader thinks. The market doesn't care what Terry Ryan thinks either. So what leads you to believe an outside buyer would uh, make more money for your harvesters? Well, on that, on that issue, uh, the request went out for outside buyers. And... Uh, at some point, at some point, uh, the issue really is whether or not there's competition uh, in the province and uh, whether or not somebody would come in uh, in this market doesn't seem likely, but uh, given given the, the circumstances. Uh, but, you know, um, it, it didn't. The province has said no to that. And uh, the other thing that the province has indicated, they're willing to. Uh, have a, a study uh, on on competition in the province, and you know we'll we'll be a part of that uh, when, when that uh, when that comes into uh, play. If there was outside buyers, and if harvesters were allowed to sell X percentage of their catch, whether it be directly to restaurants, which they can, and or individuals, or set up shop on the shoulder of the highway, what do you say to the plant plant workers that you represent that some of them might lose their job or lose some weeks, and then we're right back to the EI week uh, conversation. Well, as been said before, uh, there has to be a better way to do this. I mean, you can have, uh, in this province, you can have uh, the largest fishery, 120 million pounds of uh, crab uh, moving out of the province, and we have people struggling for work. 
So the issue is how we do business in the province. And can we do it better? And I, I think we can. And, and many other people uh, think we can do, do a better uh, a job. At uh, That's why I called earlier for a crab marketing board. And I think that's important and, you know, something we'll talk about uh, in the off-season. Uh, but, you know, things need to improve here so that we maximize uh, not only uh, the incomes uh, for harvesters from this resource, but the infrastructure in the province, including plant workers. We can be doing a better job on this. So, you know, let's get cracking. Last one before we both have to go. So it was the union versus ASP. There was harvester versus harvester in some capacity. There was also now union versus union. Why did you go out to Argentia for one-day blockade? Even the leader of the uh, uh, Carpenters Union says, you guys need to get your house in order because they signed an agreement with their employer for no work stoppages on site. Why go to that site and put up any sort of blockade for any amount of time? A good one, Patty. That's a good question. Here's the answer. Uh, we didn't. We didn't orchestrate or direct uh, harvesters into the Argentia area. Okay? That's point number one. Point number two. Uh, I have a uh, Mike, this guy, uh, what was his name again, Mike? It is Mike. Uh, yeah, Mikey Williams, I think. Mike Williams. Oh, yeah, Mike, Mike Williams. Yeah, Mikey Williams, yeah. Yeah, first of all, uh, I'm not sure what Mike is talking about there because uh, I have correspondence from Trades NL, uh, which recognize what I just said, that it wasn't, uh, wasn't us directing, orchestrating uh, demonstrations in Argentia. In fact, uh, anybody who had a cursory look at NTV that day would know very well who directed people to Argentia. So it wasn't us, and Mike should uh, actually get an internet subscription because uh, Trades NL recognized the same thing and said the same thing at the same day. So uh, there it is. If you were able to tell them to tie up their bow, should you not be able to also tell them to get out of there? Sorry? As the leader, you know, you encouraged the solidarity of a tie-up, so pretty much told your harvesters to tie-up for X amount of time. Should you also, if there's a blockade at Argentia, as leadership say, okay, boys, that's inappropriate, get out of there? Yeah, if we orchestrate it, and you saw us orchestrate demonstrations in this province, in, in particularly in St. John's over the last six weeks, yep. um, most of which uh, we appeared at, all of which I appeared at, and uh, so... If you, if you set something in motion, there's no problem to turn it off. But when you don't set something in motion and you're not responsible for it, then it's very difficult to have people uh, uh, turn or, or stop or when we have no connection to the actual uh, demonstration. So that's where that one is. I mean, I'm sure there were, there were uh, uh, progressive conservative members out there and liberals, but uh, nobody's calling them out that, that there was a bunch of liberals or conservatives blocking off the uh, agenda. Uh, but it's easy to say it was the FFAW members when, in fact, we had no part in this. And I think, uh, well, I know Trades NL recognizes that, and not only that, uh, other other individuals too. I think you know who orchestrated it, Patty. I'm not you entirely sure. I've had oh, okay. lots of names floated by me, but I haven't been able to lock yeah. it down. I wish we had more time. Let, me, I, let, me, let, me, let me help you. Let me help you with it. Okay. Uh, the same individual uh, block, closed our office the same day went to the minister's office a couple hours later, and then wound up in Argentia. Okay. That's how so, that. So, I mean, and NTV, I mean, just have a look at NTV, and uh, you'll, you'll see it. I wish you had more time, because I want to talk about how the FFAW oh, used oh, no their war chest, and when you get some settlement on trip limits, maybe we can use that as a reason to have you back on, because there's more I want oh. to talk about. 
Oh, no problem. Anytime. Thanks, Greg. Thanks very much. Okay, bye-bye. It's Greg Purdy, uh, FFAW president. Talk away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line five. Dana, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Okay, thank you. How are you? Good. We've, we've been overdue for a conversation. I'm excited to be on your program today. Um, what I'd like to talk about is the lack of transparency from our uh, provincial government, mainstream media, as well as the College of Physicians on the side effects that were released in um, April 2022. That includes nine pages of side effects, including death, um, pulmonary edemas, heart attacks, strokes, brain bleeds, increased miscarriages, increased type 2 diabetes, increased autoimmune, autoimmune diseases. Um, it is the Pfizer data. It did come out in the courts in the United States, as well as Israel just put out um, more additional information to back the data. So my, my question is, is, you know, why are none of the medias or none of the colleges or none of the um, physicians um, addressing the fact that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians do not have informed consent? Because informed consent involves providing this information to the patient and allowing them to make an informed decision on such. So, yeah, why do you think this is happening? Do you think it's because maybe the information has changed and that they weren't aware? Or do you think, um, like, I mean, we are still we are still giving these things to our, our children, even though nobody under the age of 50 in Israel or the United States have actually died from COVID? Well, th- well, that's not true. Uh, but secondly, so there's that's, a... That is true. It's, it's not true, and you know it's not it, true. So it, it, It's in the Israel court documents. I can provide that to you at a, at a later time if you would like to continue the conversation, but go ahead. Well, there's, ahead. you know, it's whether or not there was a COVID-related death or COVID absolutely was the just and sole cause for death. And that's where I've been very careful to say things were COVID-related because I've never okay. seen someone okay. tell me that it was only COVID and nothing but COVID that killed you. Secondly, there's a laundry list... Of side effects, not only listed on the Government of Canada's website, but on their own company's website and for every single drug we talk about. I mean, you sit down to watch some uh, sports on a Sunday afternoon and okay, every okay, pharmaceutical well, we're, we're, every pharmaceutical commercial comes up with not just telling you what it can do to make your life better, but all of these associated risks all the way up to death. And these are on okay. national television. We have a 7% increase all-cause mortality higher rate in Newfoundland than other Atlantic provinces. There's a company that delivers uh, caskets to Newfoundland. Prior to the last six months, there was one truck coming on the island once a week, and now we have two to three trucks every two weeks. But though so we, the are conf- we are experiencing a higher mortality. I have a program, Patty, that I'd really like you to watch. It's called SOS. I'm doing it on a regular on Wednesdays on Facebook and Twitter, and that is actually the people that are vaccine injured. We are trying to give them a voice because where the mainstream media is not allowing them to discuss what's happening to them. We have a young man named Ryan Parsons here who had pulmonary edema. And he took his vaccine to be able to attend university, and he wasn't allowed to go to university, even though taking another um, taking another vaccine would kill him. The this problem, the problem inside, people. the problem inside the vaccine conversation, which has become a bit of a cottage industry, is that all the excess deaths, which we have tried through public health and the department to get whatever breakdown they understand to be the causes to, that led to any of these deaths, but the problem yeah, is I'm when not- people engage me with it, they say that every single one of those deaths is because of the vaccine. I mean, okay, that's a so tough conversation to entertain. 
No, okay, so listen, we're, we're, you're, you're totally going in a different direction, and I appreciate the fact that you're trying to divert me from an uncomfortable conversation. What are you talking but about? I'm not uncomfortable with this. Because I'm not talking about COVID deaths. I'm talking about vaccine injuries. Yeah, okay, uh, again, again, if anyone has a vaccine injury, no one's ever turned them away from this program, ever. Okay, so could it be fair to say that maybe we could pick a date where you would highlight the vaccine injured and we could have them call in, the ones that are credibly diagnosed from their doctors with as being vaccine injured and that you will give them a voice? And even the government of Canada acknowledges that it's a a possibility because there's a vaccine injury fund. So no one's denied that there can indeed be side effects from the vaccine. Nobody, ever. Not me. So I don't know. I like how I get lumped in with the mainstream media, this X, Y, and Z. What? But but at the same time, this info information is not giving to patients. Do you know that when if you go into any pharmacy in Newfoundland and you ask to see the insert inside the Pfizer, which is in every other drug, every single other drug, whether it's birth control pills or high blood pressure pills, that inside the package itself, it says intentionally blank. That's not on me. So, <laughs> I have so nothing to do with that. No, but what I'm telling you is that people in Newfoundland, I know that you say all drugs come with side effects, but informed consent, which is what we are entitled to under the Nuremberg Code and the College of Physicians that will do no harm, says that we are supposed to have informed consent. They are supposed to give us a list of what those side effects are or give us a copy of the insert. And here in Newfoundland, all people are giving for their consent is they're asking their pharmacist if it's going to give them a sore if the pharmacist says, well, it might give you a sore arm and you could be tired. We are not informing the general public of the risks is what I'm saying. Do you think the risks may have been exaggerated? I mean, I saw Absolutely. something, someone shared, Absolutely. Dana. I can, I can give you the information, Patty. I, I have the information. I have it. I just read a, new, uh, a document come from John, John Hopkins University last week. I don't know why I did, but I did. Do you think, like, uh, someone also shared a screenshot with me where the insinuation is that by the end of, I think it was next year, some almost two-thirds of the vaccinated American public will die from the vaccine? I mean, that's where the conversation just goes sideways. That's not my claim at all. I'm not saying that people are going to die from being vaccinated. I'm saying people have died and have been injured. I don't know if that's one person. Well, I know there's more than one because I have 170 in Newfoundland that want to tell their stories. But I'm saying that it happens. I'm not here as a conspiracy theorist to tell you that I think that there's this, you know, cynical plan, you know, that, you know, the world's going to end tomorrow and that somebody's out to get us. I'm here to tell you that we have a real problem with these vaccines on this island. And it's our job as citizens and media people to have a responsibility to inform the public of the risks. And it's not happening. And still all across this province... We are lobbying for children 12 and under to get their boosters, and it affects their fertility. That's a fact. It's in the Pfizer data. Some of these children may be infertile. But see, what's also not in these risks lists and side effect lists is the likelihood of. So if there's a likelihood of dying from a high, high blood pressure or a cholesterol pill that leads to potential death, it doesn't mean that anyone is going to die. It means that there one, might be one, the possibility. Four. The statistics are one in four, and if you'd like, I can bring the physicians on the immunologist. There's one in Jessica Rose. She's in Israel. She's a Mon Accolade graduate that's been very active on this. I can give you the statistics. I'm telling you they're high. I'm telling you it's like one in four. 
Well, I'm not worried about talking about vaccine or vaccine injured on this program. So I know why people try to lump everyone into the exact same envelope on these things because it makes it's easy. You know, it's the low hanging fruit. Nobody's ever called this show and said, I'm vaccine injured and was so long. Sorry, you can't come on. So it's never happened. So you guys can try as you might to do that stuff and paint people in certain lights. But it's never happened here. So anyway. SOS, SOS, mm. supporting our survivors. It's on 7.30 on Wednesday. It's on Facebook. It's on Twitter. And we also have an organization called um, Silent Survivors, where we have a database of hundreds of thousands of people in this country. Are you saying that it's okay for, for you to give us that airtime, for us to give them a voice? You, pro- you provide me with something from a doctor that says there's a correlation, direct or otherwise, with a vaccine, as opposed to someone just calling me out of the blue and saying I'm vaccine injured. I have no way to understand the veracity of that claim. So until someone provides me with something beyond, oh, I'm just telling you I'm injured, don't you think it's also incumbent on me to be able to make sure that they're bringing forward accurate information as opposed to just well, spreading I- fear? I think I think it's clear now that um, we're all going around and COVID is over and we're still vaccinating with people. Yeah, people now, who choose it, to get vaccinated it, is what it, where it, we are. You know what? They're choosing something that they don't have informed consent on. This is what I'm telling you. In Israel, under 50, no nobody with zero core morbidities. This is in the courts, and I'll provide you the documents. Died from COVID. And we're vaccinating 12 years old, 12 year old children that affects their fertility. It's in the Pfizer data patty. You can't promote this stuff. I haven't promoted a vaccine in years. <laughs> so again, right? You, you can't tell me what I've said when I didn't say it, okay? So that's as simple as that. I have always said people get vaccinated if they, through discussion with their doctor, choose to get it. Now, yes, there's talk about mandates and that is absolutely real, which I have not strayed away from talking about either. So. Because of the time on the clock, we'll leave it there. You can feel free to send along whatever you like to me, Dana, and I appreciate your time. Well, yeah, and one more thing before I go. Very quickly. One more thing before I go. Informed consent. Make sure everybody that's listening to this show, make sure you check with your physician and ask them to give you the proper information that's on that leaflet, and I guarantee you they'll say no. Thank you for your time, Patty. I hope you have a fantastic day, and I hope you and your family are doing well. Thank you. Same to you. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, last break, when we come back, Dr. Elizabeth English, professional architecture, wants to tell us about a project they're working on. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to Dr. Elizabeth English, professor of uh, me, architecture at the University of Waterloo. Good morning, doctor. You're on the air. Um, hello. Good morning, and uh, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to have you on. I wish we had more time. I know there's a conference coming up in October. We'll check back in prior to that. So tell us about the project. Um, The Buoyant Foundation Project is a strategy for improving flood resilience and climate change adaptation. And it's like putting a floating dock underneath your house so that when the flood comes, your house will float straight up. Uh, It has a vertical guidance system as well as a buoyancy system. It'll float straight up and, and stay on top of the water until the water goes away and then come back down and uh, rest again on its original foundation. It sounds like a dream, but they've been doing it for 40 years in uh, a rural area in Louisiana, and it works beautifully. If we're talking about indigenous communities, many of which in the country's north may indeed be built, not just where they live, but also their transportation network on permafrost, which is melting. How does that impact the work you're doing? 
Um, well, it means I'm studying freeze-thaw cycles for, for my work because previous installations have been in warm climates. So the National uh, Research Council uh, gave me a grant to look at how the freeze-thaw cycles impact the buoyancy materials and what changes need to be made to the system in order to work in Canada and in particular be applied for uh, First Nations where there is such a strong uh, uh, desire to stay on their land rather than have to move. There's a lot to this conversation, which is just absolutely massive. Because of the time, we're quickly running out. Would you like to or do you have time to join us again at some point this week so that we can flesh this out a little further, Dr. English? Sure, sure. I'd be delighted to. Well, between myself and you and Dave Williams, my producer, let's do exactly that. And my apologies for the short uh, time today. No problem. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. As Dr. Bye Elizabeth bye. English, uh, we'll absolutely have to pick that up, Dave, because there's a lot to that conversation. My apologies for the short amount of time available. All right, good show today. Big thanks to those who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Talk in the morning. Bye-bye.